Welcome to the February EM Reviews and Perspectives. This is Swami here, as always, with Jan Schoenberger. Jan, February, it's a little chilly here, but I'm happy to be back on with you. I'm happy as well, and I kind of like February. It's uh, Now, you see I say February instead of February, and I don't know which way is right. I think they're probably both acceptable. February. 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 Somehow it does feel like an odd month, even though it's just a few days shorter. But yeah, yeah. Yes, it, it feels short. Even it though, ends too why? soon. It ends too soon. <laughs> but we still have the same amount of content in spite of the fact that the month yes, is two to three days shorter. So we don't get to relax and you guys get all of the fantastic normal volume of content that you would under usual circumstances. Absolutely. And starting with our case, Jane. The case. You have a fantastic case. It's a really interesting case, and I'm enrolling the help of one of our fourth-year residents to help tell the story. My name is Chase Westra, and I'm a fourth-year resident in emergency medicine at LA County USC. All right, so the story begins with a call to our recess area from our psych ED. Now, in our department, we have a locked psych ED that is adjacent to our regular ED, and this is a place where we have patients who are on involuntary psychiatric holds waiting for either transfer to other facilities or they even can have their hold sort of happen there. But you can't be in there if you have like ongoing medical problems, like you need IV anything. So the people who are in there are all medically clear, right? No medical problems whatsoever. Mid-afternoon, I receive a frantic call from one of our longtime, really well-known psychiatrists in the psych ED asking me to come immediately. I need you right now, I think is actually exactly what he said. So I run over there, I walk into the psych ED, and I find about a 30-year-old woman lying sort of half on the gurney, altered and flailing her extremities. Nursing staff is connecting her to a monitor, and I look at one of our EM interns who's rotating through the psych ED. She tells me that the woman had a history of hypertension, hypothyroidism, a recent COVID infection, and was actually being treated for a UTI while in the psych ED. And after a 10-day stay, she was being discharged. After being notified that she was going to be discharged, she stood up, walked to a phone to talk to family, and then looked to be in distress as she was walking back to her bed before subsequently collapsing kind of half onto the bed. What are you thinking? Do you think this is real? Are you thinking that it might not be real? What are your, what are your thoughts? I would love to say my default is to go right to the medical evaluation of this patient, but we all know we've been called over to the psych ED. There's this event, the patient's about to be discharged, talks to their family, and now all of a sudden is behaving strangely. So there's a bit of, of a location bias. This is the psych ED. This patient was there for a 10-day psych hold, and we're automatically thinking, is this a conversion disorder? Is this a, an emotional reaction? But first of all, we're talking about it on MRAP, so it's not going to be that. And we kind of have to put that on hold. We have to check our initial instincts and just say, let's do a full medical evaluation. And if this is a psychiatric issue, that is a diagnosis of exclusion at the end of everything else. So we're going to start with what we do best get them on a monitor, see what the vital signs are, and then start moving down that altered mental status pathway. The issue of location bias, I find particularly fascinating in both directions. For example, you know, if you're working in your high acuity area and maybe things are slow and you pull a patient from the waiting room who's been waiting a long time, you know, to see a complaint that may have otherwise in normal circumstances gone to your low acuity area, you can also find yourself putting in an IV in a patient who doesn't need it. You know, thinking of things that are much worse than what they really turned out to be. And how, did you think differently than you were in your fast track, for example. So I feel like that challenge of location bias can go in multiple directions. So the nurse moves her onto the bed and connects her to a monitor, which shows that she's tachycardic, hypotensive, and hypoxic. In all honesty, and despite the fact that the patient in front of me looked cool, pale, diaphoretic, location bias really took over, and I was thinking initially of some sort of conversion disorder versus potential pseudo-seizure. 
Honestly, I even asked the nursing staff to find another monitor to recheck the vitals. And sure enough, again, tachycardic, hypotensive, hypoxic. So at this point, we moved her immediately over to our resuscitation area. And as she was being wheeled out, I get a call from our EMS base station, letting me know that we had two TTAs that were both coming in. That's our trauma team activations arriving in about five minutes. So what are you thinking now? Infection seems less likely as a cause of the hypotension and the hypoxemia because this patient was stable five, 10 minutes ago. So that seems unlikely. Cardiac stuff has definitely got to be on the list. Maybe there was an event in that conversation that set off a cardiac issue. I've seen these kind of things where the patient has a discussion with a family member or somebody else, and then they have a Takotsubos. So that's a possibility. So we have to kind of go down that cardiac route. Pulmonary embolism, you said recent COVID, the patient's been in psych ED for 10 days. I worked at a place with one of these psych EDs. The patients aren't getting a lot of exercise here, Jan. It's not like they got outdoors time where they're running around. So we got to think about pulmonary embolism, but it's got to be something that's a sudden onset. So it's unlikely this is a floridly hypothyroid patient because they were about to be discharged. Sepsis seems off the list, but cardiac, PE, pulmonary kind of things. I mean, you could have thought maybe this was a seizure, but that shouldn't cause the hypotension and the hypoxemia, unless she's still seizing. Maybe she could be hypoxemic, still seizing, but that seems a little bit less likely. So I I want an EKG. I want a bunch of labs. And the fact that those traumas are coming in, I know now that the scanner is going to be like completely out of play for the next 20 minutes once those guys hit the door. So I want to get this patient into CT if I need a CT scan to go further. So as we're wheeling her gurney into recess, it becomes apparent that she's only flailing half her body. She was moving her left arm, left leg, and was hemiplegic on the right side, right arm, right leg. Appeared that she might be hemiplegic on her left side. Immediately, we thought ischemic versus potentially hemorrhagic stroke and called a code stroke, which at our hospital brings obviously neuro as well as our ED pharmacist to bedside. We were all racking our brains to find a coalescing diagnosis and potentially throughout the idea of a massive PE. Although this didn't entirely explain the hemiplegia, could be maybe an aortic dissection, but at this point, I think massive stroke was still at the top of our differential. One of our awesome third years, Dr. Megan Fisher-Colbury, took over as I went to start the eval and resuscitation of what ended up being two pretty stable trauma patients. I come back to find our attending, who happens to be one of our ultrasound-trained attendings, showing what was a very obvious D-sign on the ultrasound, and resident actively discussing with neurology regarding the potential for a head CT prior to pushing TPA. What do we do at this point? Are you thinking about pushing the TPA now before you even send to CT? She's hypotensive, you're worried about her stability. What is your thought process now? The hemiplegia is really the one that gets me because that just doesn't make sense with the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. Dissection, I think, was a really interesting thought because it would explain a lot of what's going on. Maybe they measured the blood pressure in the arm where the dissection flap was, and that's why we weren't getting a adequate or accurate pressure. I feel like I would need a little bit of imaging before I go and push thrombolytics, at least a head CT to know that they don't have a bleed because I feel like a lot of these things you could see with a bleed. The D sign doesn't make a ton of sense, but you can see some weird things when you have neurologic catastrophes. Of course, a D sign is only going to be obvious if you know what a D sign is. So the D sign on ultrasound is when you're looking at that parasternal short axis view, what you see is that the left ventricle, instead of being nice and round, is shaped like a D. And the reason it's shaped like a D is because there's volume overload in the right ventricle. The right ventricle is bulging because the patient has developed acute right heart strain. As that right ventricle starts to balloon, it starts to expand, it starts to bow into the left ventricle, and it can cause that D sign, which is a classic finding in pulmonary embolism. 
So I think that I don't need a PE study to decide to push the TPA, but I need a head CT before I push the TPA. And honestly, if I'm going to be there, Jan, I want a non-con head CT, and then I want an angio all the way down. And that would give me the most security in saying I can go ahead and push some thrombolytics. But I think in the meantime, we're going to give some vasoactive substances to get the pressure up. I would probably call for the thrombolytics and have them ready to go and go to CT so that as soon as I knew what I was dealing with, or more importantly, what I wasn't dealing with, I could go ahead and push the thrombolytics. I think that's the way that I would go. I would start some norepinephrine, go over to CT, non-con head, CT angio, if I can get that done super quick, and then be ready to push the thrombolytics because PE does seem the most likely, although I just can't put it together with that hemiplegia. Data points were kind of all directing us toward obstructive shock due to a large PE, but it was, again, impossible to know whether or not this was an aortic dissection or even a hemorrhagic stroke. Ultimately, we did decide to push the TPA. We did 20 milligrams as a bolus and then started a drip of 80 milligrams over the next two hours. I think all of us in the room felt comfortable and confident in pushing the TPA. It sort of was like a you all look at each other to confirm and everybody nods their head and then you go ahead with it. And everything was pointing to PE. I mean, she was hypotensive, hypoxic, tachycardia, hindsight being 2020, it all makes a lot of sense. But in the moment with the hemiplegia, questionable dissection, questionable stroke, even seizure, I kind of think there was a moment where we were like, well, I hope this is the right thing. So finally stable, she goes over for CT head and CTPA. I remember we were all sitting back in recess and of course immediately pull up the images to see what the heck's going on. And it looked immediately like she had large bilateral pulmonary arterial emboli in addition to a left ACA stroke and some suggestion of atrial mixing concerning for an ASD. Absolutely, really interesting case. I think it takes a lot of ovaries or a lot of testicles to push that thrombolytic before going to CT. But it it is a little bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. If you push it and she's got a bleed, someone's gonna be telling you that you did the wrong thing. And if you don't give it and she codes on the table, someone's gonna be telling you you did the wrong thing. So I think it's a really hard position to be in. I don't think that it's wrong to push them before you go. And I don't think it's wrong to wait till you get that CT head. Also an ASD, I mean, honestly, Jan, like what kind of patients are you dealing with a county where she's got an ASD, she's got massive pulmonary embolism, and she had a clot crossover and caused an embolic stroke. It's just, sometimes I feel like the world is out to get us. I know, I mean, this is just, this is what we do, right? It's the art of emergency medicine. And I think you're absolutely right. I think you could justify it one way or the other. That's the craziness of what we do sometimes. Summary. Let's just wrap up with a couple kind of take-home points from this particular case. Number one. Location bias. I think location bias is real. You know, you have to kind of know that it's there. Like most biases, it's at least acknowledging that you have it and then trying to cope with it. And as you walk into that psych ED, for example, remembering that my job is to think about medical emergencies. Even in this 30-year-old person who's been stable for 10 days, I got to think about what it really could be and urge yourself to do that. Stabilize person first. Number two, no matter what the time-sensitive intervention is, you always have to stabilize your patients first. So no matter what type of shock this might have been, you have to, before you send someone off to the potential tube of death, aka CT scan, make sure your patient is stable. And in this particular case, they decided to intubate and do some things before they sent her away. Prioritize life-threatening conditions. Number three, when you're faced with tough decisions between options, you've got to do that quick risk-benefit analysis Just go back to the question of what is most life-threatening to this patient in front of you and what is the objective evidence I have support in terms of my decision-making, but know that this is really tough and you can go one way or the other and sometimes you'll be wrong and sometimes you'll be right. And yes, two terrible diagnoses can exist at the same time, even in young patients. 
So that is my case. And Jen, I think point number two about stabilizing that patient before going to CT, we just talked about this with Weingart last month on how to take the critically ill patient to CT, how to do that safely. This is a great example of where you got to go to CT scan with that patient in spite of the fact that they're pretty sick. And so how do we do that the safest way? I think taking the airway, starting those pressors before taking the airway, making sure the patient is as stable as you can get them, and then going to CT with all of the stuff you could possibly need, once again, is the way to do it. So, um, hey, to your residents, what a great case. It doesn't get much worse than this, although I can think of some worse scenarios. That's about as bad as it gets. So good on them for figuring this out, working through it, and, and really figuring out the best way to take care of that patient. Jen, that really starts off the month with a bit of a bang. Our last month's case was a little bit of a, a lower key thing, just talking a little cellulitis. And so you had to bust out the PE stroke one just to kind of throw a little bit of a wrench into things. And that will take us into the rest of the month where we do have some great stuff. And my favorite segment this month, Jan, was the one on TTP. Not that I've seen a ton of cases of TTP, but I am pretty sure that I've missed this a couple of times because I wasn't thinking about it. So I'm glad to see Jesse and Britt Long going through this, really talking about how to recognize patients with TTP and then how to manage them. And for me this month, I'm gonna put a little highlight on our mailbag, which we don't often talk about in our highlights, but this month, Mike Weinstock did a really nice reflective piece about why we review cases. And I really liked the discussion. So I'm putting the highlight on the mailbag this month. All right, I think those are both some great pieces. There's lots of other great content in here. We're gonna dive into all that content. And of course, Jan, we're going to see all the listeners on the other side in the mailbag to listen to Mike's piece. And then with the mega summary. So Jan, time to lift off. I'll see you on the other side. See you on the other side, Swami. See you on the other side. It's time again for Scott Weingott. Critical care. Oh, Scott, it's not critical care mailbag today. Uh-oh, what are we doing? I, I was planning for a critical care mailbag. No, we're going to do the hodgepodge. We got a bunch of different questions. We're going to throw them all together in one place. And I guarantee that we are now going to have some hodgepodge music. It's a critical It's a critical Hodgepodge. Hodgepodge. All right. I love hodgepodge music. If I'm all discombobulated, you know why. <laughs> all right, Scott. So we got, like I said, a couple of questions from listeners and we want to get into them. The first one is on the segment that we did way back in January 2022 on stopping cardiac arrest. Question one. And we discussed kind of what you're looking for that tells you this arrest is done or we're going to continue. And then in the June mailbag, Donald Crow sent in his thoughts on the topic. And Scott, you had some follow-up thoughts, so I'm going to give you the floor. Go for it. What this esteemable doctor who very nicely elucidated his points, I thought it was very uh, enjoyable to listen to. I think in essence, if I needed to strongman what he was saying, it's that there's two kinds of cardiac arrest in his experience, which are primary cardiac ones and then secondary arrests from another issue that eventually causes the heart to stop. And I don't disagree with that characterization. I just wonder how it helps you on a primarily in-hospital arrest, which is what he was talking about, but out-of-hospital arrest as well. And the points he was making is, well, if you don't think it's from the heart primarily, then you should just stop early because they're not coming back. This has not been my experience, and it hasn't been what the literature has shown. In fact, most of the codes in the hospital are indeed what he would refer to as secondary cardiac arrest from other things such as sepsis or respiratory issues. But the jump to that these patients therefore deserve a shorter time being coded doesn't follow in the literature. What the literature would tell you is that for in-hospital codes, the longer you go, 
the more ROSC you get. And some of those ROSCs will go home neurologically intact. And that PA in the hospital is a very different beast than PA in the field. Many of these patients can be resuscitated readily from their secondary cardiac arrest. And the reason why is because oftentimes they just have dropped to a blood pressure that can sustain mental state or a pulse that's palpable, but their heart's still beating. And you come and you do your initial resuscitation and you could get them better. So I'm not sure exactly what the basis in the literature and extent research is to support this viewpoint that, first of all, you'd be able to discern a primary from secondary readily in an in-hospital arrest. But secondarily, what would make you think that you shouldn't run these arrests as long as you would one that you presumed was from a heart primary cause? So yeah, I just don't, I don't buy it. And I don't have in my experience that that is the case. I have had codes that I've run in hospital, you know, working where I have, I I do a lot of in-hospital codes. And, you know, we do get patients back after extended periods of time. And some of them do walk out of the hospital to their family. So the literature doesn't support it and my experience doesn't support it. So I don't know if I agree is where I'll leave it, Swami. If we're still going to run those arrests, like you're talking about, are there things that you do differently when you respond to the in-hospital cardiac arrest as opposed to the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in terms of your management? You know, there's not too much. One of the things that's a pet peeve of mine is oftentimes I'll respond to a code in the ICU and the patient will have an art line in and they will just stop looking at the art line and they'll still be doing pulse checks and wasting 20 seconds for each time there's a rhythm check to uh, try to ascertain a pulse when I'm like, guys, look up at the monitor. You know, the, that line, it, it's, it's measuring whether there's a pulse or not. It's called an arterial line. So that's one thing that's a huge pet peeve. You have the benefit in an in-hospital rest of knowing what the hell was happening for, you know, the day prior to them arresting. So it's really an information search where you send the poor intern to do a chart biopsy and figure out what the hell is going on with this patient up until this moment. But then sometimes you actually have the team taking care of the patient respond, which you never get in the field, a medically trained person who's going to give you all the information you need. So that's really the only differences I could think of for in-hospital arrest. Question two. All right, let's get to topic number two. This is about fluids and sepsis, a topic that, let's be honest, Scott, we're never going to get away from. We are going to be talking about this until the day that we leave the field. I mean, maybe that's not true, but it feels like it's true. And we had a couple of letters from Michael W. about our 2021 November critical care mailbag, where we talked about fluid resuscitation and fluid responsiveness. And in that segment, one of the things that you really push for is go ahead and give that initial fluid bolus, but then rapidly move to pressors instead of repeat boluses. And Michael's got a couple of comments on the site people can check out where he kind of really goes into a deep dive into the literature about why maybe we shouldn't be shying away from fluids as much as we are. I think that you disagree, and I want you to kind of express your thoughts and and the thoughts that Michael had and kind of how that comes together to guide your management. Yeah. So in addition to the comments on the MRAP site, Michael and I have had, I think, uh, an hour-long chat about this, and he's proven himself to be a remarkably well-read, totally makes fantastic points, and I don't disagree with his methodology at all. So we agree on the evidence, and where we disagree is what you should do with that evidence. Since that, that piece we did, Swami, we did have an additional big randomized control trial come out called Classic that we'll talk about for a few seconds, and that sparked Mike to write us back again. And what Classic did is in a international ICU, they actually, uh, once the patient got to the ICU, had a restrictive fluid group and a do-what-the-hell-you-want group, and they were positing their hypothesis was the restricted group would do better. And for all the main endpoints, it was the same between the two. Now, you might say, oh, fait accompli, Mike is right, we shouldn't be restricting fluids. Now, 
Where it was interesting is over the course of like five days, which is what their endpoint was for, you know, the major points in the study, the difference between the two groups were like two liters of fluid. So it was not the test I'd really want to prove my point, or I think Mike would have really wanted. So it wasn't profligate fluid versus restriction, which would maybe have given us an answer. And the fluid balance, you know, the uh, positives or negatives was 800 cc's difference between the two groups. So even the ones you gave a bunch of fluid to, it proves their kidneys were still working, they peed it out. That's not the patients we really worry about. So while it wasn't a score for my side of this debate, I don't think it was also a nail in the coffin because the groups were pretty much identical. But it does go to show that you might argue, I like fluids, you have to prove to me that they're not safe. And I'm going to have trouble doing that in this small differences between two groups. Mike's point is the sepsis guidelines are good and we should use them. And he gave a host of non-randomized data to support it. And my contention has always been, and this is what we said on the piece, if you're going by where they were originally, 20 cc's per kg, I agree. I think there's very few patients that can't get 20 cc's per kg of an initial fluid bolus. And then even Mike says, do what the hell you want after that point. But at some point, they jumped to 30 cc's per kg with no evidence to support it. And that's what really uh, sticks in my craw. So at the end of the conversation I had with Mike about these issues, I said, can we just agree almost every patient should get 20 cc's per kg and then you should use your clinical acumen to determine whether or not they need more fluids. And we were both of us in complete agreement on that statement. And that's where I'll leave this discussion, Swami. I think, Scott, one of the big problems here, and you've talked about this many times on your podcast, you've talked about it on MRAP as well, is that none of us are doing what we did 15 years ago, which was flood these patients with eight to 12 liters of fluid when they came in with sepsis. And so we're never going to get the study that compares, go ahead and give them what you used to give them, 10, 12, 14 liters over 24 hours versus a very restrictive. And so we're never going to see that big, humongous difference because we've all already kind of moved to not doing that. Yeah, that's the problem. And I think there are still places out there that are doing it. And if you are, write to MRAP so that we could uh, enroll your place (laughs) in a trial where it would be still safe to not force you to give 12 liters when you're giving two. And since you're already doing it standard care at your place, and then we could put a, a restricted group next to you and we'd actually be able to have some real data. And while we say it's a problem, Scott, we think it's a good thing. We think it's a good thing that we're not just giving liter after liter after liter of fluid, but actually thinking maybe this patient needs a little presser support after I've already given 30 cc's per kilo. For all the reasons we mentioned in the previous piece and all of the current papers coming out, and I think even if I remember correctly, surviving sepsis, most recent iteration includes this, is the idea that even if you believe in giving fluids, to not have pressers there makes it much harder to fill that tank because the venous side is so vasodilated that you'd have to put a ton in to get the same results you would get with a just modicum of vasopressor on board. So even if you believe in fluids, it's not a blocking of giving early vasopressors. And you've mentioned it many times, Scott, but I think it bears repeating that when you start them on that vasopressor, which is usually going to be norepinephrine is going to be our first one that we're starting. It's not just that you're clamping down on the arterial side, but you are clamping down on the venous side, which is then going to increase your preload. Exactly. But it's even, it's even more, it's at very low doses, you know, the two, three, four micrograms per minute of norepinephrine, it only affects the venous side. So really you're getting exactly what you want. You're like, oh, I don't think this patient needs their pressure raised by squeezing those arteries. I just want to give them fluids. Well, give them fluids and a tiny bit of norepinephrine and you will get a much better bang for your buck. And it's why we see those patients who you've got them on two or three 
of norepinephrine and you're like, oh, their pressure's fine. Maybe I can take that off. And as soon as you stop it, they drop in the tank and they just need that little, little bit of norepinephrine just to stay in that nice, happy map of 65. Yeah, don't do that because the reason that people are telling you to do that is they don't want to put them in an ICU. If the patient needed a norepi drip at some point and now they are supposedly fluid replete and they're going to be better, trust me, they're going to crap out at 4 a.m. Just put those patients in an ICU. Question three. All right, Scott, that brings us to the last question in our hodgepodge. Another listener question, can I place an IJ or subclavian line in a patient who has a permacath? And we're not talking necessarily about just putting it on the same side. Even on the opposite side, is it okay because the tip of my line is going to sit where I think the tip of the permacath is sitting? Yeah, you try to avoid putting them on the same side is where we could start. You could do it if you need to. I mean, you just make sure that you're not sticking your needle in so deep that the needle itself could actually hit that catheter in the different uh, central vessel. So if you have something in the subclavian and you're putting the IJ, then try not to go beyond the borders of the neck. And if you're doing a subclavian again, you know, maybe pull a little bit back on that clavicle. You can do it. Is it the greatest idea in the world? No, but sometimes you have to. Now you asked the question of, can you put something in on the opposite side when you already have something there? Yes, you definitely can. That should be of a far lower worry to you. But here's the kicker on that. If it's a permacath, it means at some point the patient may need to get a AV fistula. And you really, if that's the case, if it's a patient with you know definitive renal failure that's going to long-term dialysis and this permacath is there while they are waiting for their operation for the AV fistula, you want to leave that entire other side alone. You really, in an ideal world, wouldn't even put in peripheral IVs. Those are much lower risk, but you definitely don't want to put any central lines and you don't want to put any uh, picks or midlines in on that side. So if the permacath's on the right where it often is, just leave that entire left side alone and potentially go for something in the femorals. If there are no femorals and I knew this patient was going down the AV fistula route, I would actually put in the IJ for my central line on the same side as the permacath if it was in the subclavian or vice versa, rather than take that left upper extremity or left upper neck out of the picture. Now, there was a study looking at can you put central lines in on the same side as pacemakers? And the answer is yes, at least in this, you know, and they didn't have the numbers to get that complication because it's probably one in a thousand and this study only had a hundred patients and they didn't have problems. It doesn't mean you'll never have a problem, but it means the problem is probably very low risk. So as long as you're careful and you don't like if your wire catches something you can't pull it out here's what you don't do you don't stick your foot on the patient's shoulder and pull that wire out with full force you know if you were that one in a thousand that got into trouble and you can't remove the wire then just put a hemostat on it and get vascular imaging and figure out what the hell's going on don't yank is the answer for putting anything in on the same side as anything else if i put the line on the opposite side and the patient is going down that av fistula pathway how long does that delay the patient from getting the procedure that they need to have? It's not a delay. The problem is everything you have in those vessels is the potential for stenosis. So if, if that occurs, that is a problem and it may actually cause the fistula not to work as well. So it's not a how long after, it's a how long did it sit there because each you know, day you have something in those vessels is increasing the risk. So if you put one in crash during a code, and then it got taken out, you know, okay, well, that was like 12 hours. It's probably going to be pretty low risk. If something sat there for two weeks, it's higher risk. The other thing we should have mentioned that this sparks in my memory, Swami, is the more things you have in the same set of vessels, the more risk of upper extremity DVT you have as well. Now, that's 
not an enormous issue, but it does become a problem later on down the line. If these things are staying in for days and days, if you start building clot there, and that could eventually embolize. So that's another thing to think about why we try to keep, you know, one thing per vessel if we can. But if you, if you need to do it, you need to do it. I mean, we, we routinely would have, you know, a subclavian and an IJ on the same side all the time on our trauma patients just because of their injuries precluding like any other site. So that's what I say is you can do it, but if you have another option, don't. So bottom line, if they've got a permacap, let's say it's on the right-hand side, you can put in a right-sided IJ. Just be careful with your needle manipulation so you're not going too low. You can definitely put stuff on the left side, so left IJ or left subclavian. If the patient, though, is going down the route of AV fistula on the opposite side, leave the side alone if you can, and then possibly direct towards either the same side or to the femoral vessel. Exactly right. All right, Scott, thanks for uh, hitting us up with the hodgepodge with all these different questions. All the listeners out there, keep sending your questions in so we can do more of these little segments where we tackle all of them at one time with the expert, Scott. Thanks so much. What a pleasure, Swami. It's a critical care. It's a critical care. Hodgepodge. Hodgepodge. Stop that code for cardiac arrest. No. Just keep going. It's probably best. Should have back off on giving some fluid. No. No, you should not. Just do it. Absolutely. It's a critical care. It's a critical care. Hodgepodge. Hodgepodge. It's a critical care. It's a critical care. Hodgepodge. Hodgepodge to you. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi here, and we're back for Rural Medicine. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by a new guest. This is Dr. Lewis Yu, and uh, he is joining me from California today, but that's not where he always works, I don't believe. Lewis, nice to meet you, and tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm very excited. I'm a longtime listener. I trained at UCSF, graduated in 2019, and really throughout all of the pandemic, I've been taking quite a bit of my time to work in the Indian Health Services. So I work at a variety of hospitals with different levels of staffing, different capabilities um, within the IHS. And I do so through a locums company called Pinnacle EMG. Side note, they're the only native-founded public benefit corporation providing staffing for the Indian Health Services. So where did this particular story take place? Yeah, let me set the scene. So it's the end of December 2021. We're in Shiprock, New Mexico, which is located in Navajo Nation. Northern Navajo Medical Center is located in the northwest corner of New Mexico, and we're at about 5,000 feet elevation. The population is around 8,000 people, and the landscape is beautiful, red rock and desert with scattered forests. I remember the weather had been a real challenge over the past few days, and we had bed shortages, as well as boarding COVID patients on BiPAP and high-flow nasal cannula. And this was the beginning of the Omicron wave. So Northern Navajo Medical Center is over six hours from Phoenix by ground, and another six hours at Salt Lake City in good weather. San Juan Regional Medical Center in Farmington is a little over a half an hour drive and accepts a lot of our dialysis, STEMI, and trauma transfers. And having this large, capable medical center nearby it's definitely a luxury by rural EM standards. Okay, so you've set the scene, you've uh, set the time as well, the beginning of the Omicron wave. It sounds a little bit concerning. I'm a little bit nervous already. So um, tell us the story. What happened next? At around 10 p.m. Sunday, the day after Christmas, we were preparing to sign out. Our hospital has double physician coverage during the day with single coverage at night. And we had two of our rooms occupied by COVID patients on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. My colleague was trying to wrap up his last patient when she developed large volume bloody emesis. 
The patient immediately dropped her pressures and looked to be quite sick. At this moment, we received a call from EMS for syncope in a 15-year-old that was satting 79% on room air. Per report, the patient had had cold symptoms for the past three days, and sometime in the evening, he had walked into his grandmother's room and collapsed. He had no known past medical history, was not taking any medications that EMS knew of, and his grandparents were on their way in a separate vehicle. On arrival, the patient was on non-rebreather mask at 15 liters per minute. His oxygen saturation was 79 to 85%. He was alert, but he appeared a bit tired. His triage vital signs, temperature was 96.6, blood pressure 103 over 59, heart rate was 134, and his respiratory rate was 26. He had notable central cyanosis and clear lungs on pulmonary exam. You could tell he was quite nervous, but he's putting on a good face. As we moved him into a room and RT placed him on high-flow nasal cannula, I collected some more history. He had been having sore throat and runny nose for the past three days, but this evening he had become very tired and weak. At around 1600, he woke up and could barely lift his head. He finally was able to drag himself out of bed, and he told me that he was unsure how he managed to walk to his grandmother's room. And that's when he collapsed. He denies any chest pain, but did endorse some shortness of breath. He had a mild, generalized headache, and his whole body felt heavy. He denied any past medical history. He denied taking any medications, and he denied any recent procedures. He denied any family history that he knew of, and he denied having any childhood heart conditions. All right, it's time to do that mental thing. So you got a kid, very hypoxic, syncopal, in the middle of a COVID epidemic. And he had viral symptoms. So if you said, this is just bad COVID, okay, he's 15 and you're not supposed to get that sick, but you know, some kids do, you would be done, right? But this is the problem when everybody's got the same disease. There's still other diseases out there. So what else could this be? Ask yourself the question, what else could this be? Sick, syncopal, hypoxic, central cyanosis, kid with a cold. Are you thinking about it? What you talking about? Let's hear about this interesting case. At this point, two things were pointing towards his eventual diagnosis. The central cyanosis was remarkable, and his oxygen saturation wasn't improving with high-flow oxygen delivery. I thought that he was acting like a methemoglobinemia patient, but at this point, I had no idea as to why he would have this problem. Given his central cyanosis, I was also concerned about possible hemorrhagic shock, massive PE, or late presentation of a congenital heart defect. Venipuncture provided another clue. His blood was chocolate brown. Interestingly, his oxygen saturation was measuring in the mid-70s, and typically, wavelength-based oxygen saturation is 85% in methemoglobinemia due to the methemoglobin's high absorption at both the oxy and deoxyhemoglobin spectrums. Regardless, the SpO2 reading is always inaccurate, and it tends to give a falsely elevated number. So before labs were even sent, I ordered 100 milligrams of methylene blue. His hemoglobin was 17.6, bicarb was 11, and he had a notable anion gap of 27. His methemoglobin percentage was 72% which means that he functionally dropped his hemoglobin from 17.6 to 4.9, likely over the course of an afternoon. We had a diagnosis, but I was still scratching my head. Did he have a congenital condition? What was I missing? Acquired methemoglobinemia is by far the most common presentation, frequently from medications like lidocaine, benzocaine, nitrates, rifampin, or dapsone. It can also be seen with the use of recreational drugs like poppers. And in young children and neonates, you can see methemoglobinemia from nitrate-contaminated well water and gastroenteritis, respectively. 
Later, I did some reading about congenital methemoglobinemia, which comes in two forms. And one of them, the cytochrome B5 reductase version, is more common in Navajo and Eskimo populations. However, once the grandparents arrive, the story really began to come into focus. So what did you learn from the grandparents? Is there actually a history of this in the family? No history of this in the family. And I asked them repeatedly in as many ways as I possibly could. Has anyone died suddenly for an unexplained cause? And really, there was nothing to suggest that there was a family or hereditary condition. What they were able to tell me was that around 1200, the patient was given Vicks VapoCool sore throat spray. A few sprays helped his symptoms. So later, at around 1300, he found the bottle and drank about 30 cc's of the spray. The main active ingredient is 5% benzocaine. Well, that's not good. That's why they tell you not to drink it. It's a spray. Don't drink it. Exactly. Unfortunately, the, the top comes off pretty easily. All he had to do was unscrew it. All right. I know I was joking there, but of course, this is a terrible situation. Terrible, because this young man's health is now critically, critically threatened. But at least you've got the diagnosis, right? Like, you know what you're dealing with. And you've even already asked for the antidote. You know this is methemoglobinemia, and you've asked for the methylene blue. So things are okay. So at midnight, the pharmacy called me back. They couldn't find the methylene blue. So this went from being an interesting case to a terrifying case pretty quickly. I immediately started to think of other things that I could potentially do. Could I decontaminate the gut? Probably not. This was likely too far out to have any effect. And whatever he had imbibed, he now had in his bloodstream. And decontaminating the, the gut with activated charcoal would probably have no benefit or effect. Could I use an alternative treatment? I called the toxicology center, of course, and they didn't have any viable recommendations. We had no access to hyperbaric oxygen. No one in the hospital had ever done exchange transfusion before. And we also didn't have high-dose vitamin C, which is another option that works a lot slower than methylene blue. And then finally, we had to figure out what we were gonna do. And thankfully, if you've worked in a rural emergency medicine or emergency medicine in general, you know that people are always down to figure out a creative solution to new problems. And that's exactly what we did. So I calmly asked the pharmacist to keep looking and started making some phone calls. My colleague had stabilized his crashing GI bleed patient at that point and joined me in the search for the right combination of transportation, antidote, and an accepting facility. By just after midnight, we had found a flight team that could reroute to Farmington, pick up the methylene blue that they had in stock, and then meet our patient for transport to the accepting hospital in Salt Lake City. Then we got some more bad news. The flight was delayed due to weather. Expected arrival time was roughly 2 a.m. Meanwhile, the patient was beginning to feel more fatigued. He was still communicative, but he complained of some worsening shortness of breath. He now had an expiratory wheeze on pulmonary exam. He was started on BiPAP with one inline duoneb, which he tolerated well. We repeated the VBG. If he fatigued more, I decided that I would need to intubate him. And I reviewed the procedure and the indications with the patient and his grandparents. I can imagine this would be a pretty difficult conversation to have. Just earlier that day, this young patient only had a cold, basically. He had a runny nose, he had a sore throat, he had a cold. And now he was in a critical situation where they were going to have to make a critical decision. This sounds like it's getting more and more hairy. I don't envy you. So what happened next? At 1 a.m., the pharmacy called. They had found the methylene blue. 
relief. Where was it? Good question. I don't know, but the bag was quite dusty. But within a few minutes, we had delivered the, the first dose at around 1.15 a.m. Thankfully, the patient did quite well. After his first dose of methylene blue, his methemoglobin percentage dropped to 17%. His oxygen saturations rose, and he pinked up quite a bit, so his color improved. At that time, the flight team arrived, and he had an uneventful transfer to Salt Lake City Children's Hospital, where he spent a day and a half in the hospital for observation. His methemoglobin percentage dropped to 1% after the second dose and he did not have any complications from the medication. He was discharged into the custody of his grandparents in 48 hours and was back on the reservation within three days. Wow, that's quite the story. Quite the lucky young man that the pharmacist was able to find the methylene blue, but also that you had used all your resources to try and come up with an alternative if that hadn't been found, if you hadn't been able to locate the medications. Lessons learned. When you look back on this case, what are some of the things that um, really stand out in terms of teaching points or things that you'll take away? In rural emergency medicine, one thing we need to consider that we don't in uh, our typical urban jobs is that weather has a huge impact on what you're able to do and that your ability to transfer is really the most critical part of your job because many times our hospitals don't have the resources that are needed to take care of our critically ill patients. We can stabilize but ultimately what we need to do is get our patients out. So being aware of weather issues, geography issues, and having both a plan A, B, and C in terms of transportation is critically important. I think that's an excellent point. If anyone has listened to some of my rural med stories, weather almost always comes into it, which I'm sure makes some people roll their eyes because they're like, oh, look, it's snowing again and the plane can't come. But you know, it's not always snow. Sometimes it's fog or rain. And it really really takes up a huge amount of mental energy when you're actually dealing with these cases, when you're having these weather reports literally thrown at you and you're saying, okay, I have to readjust like because you're constantly having to adjust things. And you think you set yourself up in your mind that, okay, I've got this patient here for two hours. I can do this, this, and this. And that's probably going to buy them enough time until they get into the plane and, you know, to definitive care. But then suddenly that is four hours and that affects your staffing that affects your ability to see other patients in the emergency department you know you said your single coverage overnight so it has this incredible knock on effect and it's not just that one patient that's being affected it's the whole department that's being affected and of course your staff as well so i think that's a really important point something else that you mentioned that i thought was really key was early on when you said you know when you considered giving activated charcoal and often in rural cases when we're remote and we're sort of desperate we will throw everything at the patient that we can, you know, like you give them the antibiotics, you give them the antivirals, you do everything you can, even if you don't necessarily know exactly what is going on. But those acts can sometimes distract us from the actual case as well. And I think it was really great that you realized so quickly that this is too many hours out for this to be useful. And this is going to be an intervention that, you know, isn't totally benign. We've got someone who might aspirate. You don't want to have that added complication thrown in. And so sometimes it's good to just, as many people say, stand back and do nothing. And you know, just think for another minute or two, because that can sometimes actually really be the saving grace. Another thing that I talk about a lot is how it can be very difficult when you're the doctor in the remote location, the rural location, and you've got a patient, you know you need to get them out. But in many institutions and systems, you can't transfer that patient until you have an accepting physician's name. Even in those cases where it's blindingly obvious, like there's an ax through the guy's head, you know this person's going to be accepted but you still need to have spoken to someone to get the official name so that it can be written down and then you can call for the transfer. 
Did you encounter any problems in terms of getting the transfer organized or was it smooth sailing? And how is the reception on your receiving ends? Often people who get calls from remote doctors are incredibly helpful because they realize where we are and what we're dealing with. But sometimes, you know, you're on hold for 20 minutes and you're sitting there going like, I don't have 20 minutes. So I'm curious to know how your experience with the transferring process went. So in this particular case, I, I got the patient accepted to a children's hospital in Phoenix. However, due to weather coming in from the Southwest, we had no actual transfer time. So despite having the accepting physician, I had an unknown ETA in terms of when we could actually transfer the patient. Given that he was critically ill at the time, I didn't accept this and continued to make phone calls until I had eventually contacted Salt Lake City Children's Hospital, which also accepted the patient, but had a lane of acceptable weather for transportation. So I could then have both an accepting physician and an actual timeline for transferring the patient. Yeah, it's amazing how often you get it all set up and you think, oh, the transport's all squared away. And then you realize, nope, nope, that plane, we don't even know when they're going to come. So I have to start calling other people. And then plane companies get upset. And then ambulance companies get upset. And you're like, sorry, but I've got to put the patient's needs first. And, you know, you might be booking things and then canceling because uh, life changes, the patient's situation changes. Another thing that I thought quite a bit about and read about later was the indications to intubate a patient with methemoglobinemia. Obviously, they're having an issue with oxygenation, but it's not the ones we're used to. So their hemoglobins essentially are not letting go of the oxygen that they have in their blood. So intubating doesn't really necessarily get you any more oxygenation. But for a patient who's really tiring out and unable to keep up with their own respirations or maintain a mental status, that would be the indication to intubate. And in this case, we're getting pretty close. Thankfully, we got the antidote in time. Yeah, that's uh, one of those processes where I think if it was on TV, they'd be like, intubate the patient right away. But it's like, I'm not necessarily going to fix things with this. And you are adding an extra layer of complexity to that patient now. You might then not be able to use the same transport companies. Some companies won't take an intubated patient. You're also making different demands on your staff that you have there. If you have an RT, that's great. But if you're in a place like where I work, where we don't have an RT, that means that there's a nurse has to be at the bedside, constantly adjusting the ventilator and making sure that everything there is okay. All of these decisions have downstream effects, as I said before. I am so glad that this young man did so well. I am so glad that he came into your emergency department where you were able to so quickly diagnose him. And I'm very glad that the pharmacist uh, found the antidote. That's a, a very, very important part of this story. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll join us again with more stories. And until then, take care. Thank you. Cardiology Corner. With your host, Dr. Amol Matu. Myocardial dysfunction after cardiac arrest, tips and pitfalls by Sophia Ortuno and colleagues. And I'm, I'll be honest, I love any article that starts with the words or ends with the words tips and pitfalls. First of <laughs> all, because that means, that means not an 85-page guideline. But more importantly, it means these are really things that I can bring to the bedside to improve the care of the patient in front of me. So we know that these post-ROSC patients will have shock, and that, that shock can be from many different causes and that these patients are frequently going to die of hemodynamic instability. In order to understand how to treat it, though, we really have to understand what's happening. In terms of the article, post-cardiac arrest shock, or what they refer to as PCAS, is defined by hemodynamic instability 
within the first few hours after cardiac arrest and is actually one of the, if not the leading cause of death in ROSC patients that actually make it alive to the ICU. And there's a few proposed mechanisms for why it happens. One of them is vasoplegia, also capillary leak syndrome, and then myocardial dysfunction or combinations of any of those three. And that's largely what this article really focuses on and what we'll get into just a little bit more. And I think right there, we already have something that might be a little bit of new information because I think most of the time when I saw these post-cardiac arrest patients who were shocky, I assumed it was just myocardial dysfunction. I didn't really think about these other reasons why the patient could be in shock. And one of the tricky parts is that they may not all have frank hypotension. So are we going to be able to just look at the blood pressure and say, this patient's in shock, or do we need echo, or is there something else that can give us this diagnosis post-ROSC? Not all of these patients are going to have hypotension or overt shock. So this concept of post-cardiac arrest myocardial dysfunction really does require something more. Now, in the article, they kind of mention Swan-Gans catheters, and back in the day, that might be something that we were routinely using, or, or at least occasionally using in the emergency department. And now everything's really switched over to bedside ultrasound, or echo, or, or POCUS, whatever term you want to use. And there's a lot of advantages to using the POCUS. First of all, it, it's easily accessible, and it gives you some really nice information, some of which the Swan catheters didn't tell us before. This is going to give us information about wall motion abnormality. It'll give us some general information about ejection fraction, information about left versus right ventricular distension, tamponade, pneumothorax. And, and so there's a lot of information that this can give you. And this is going to help guide your choice of treatment, whether it be pericardiocentesis or needle decompression, or more commonly, we're wondering, do we need to give this patient IV fluids or vasopressors or inotropes? Those last three things are really the, the key quandary, at least that I have whenever I'm taking care of these patients. Initially, we're going to apply that POCUS. And I think one of the things that you mentioned, which is really important, is finding or eliminating alternative causes for the patient's cardiac arrest, for the patient's shock. So like you said, locating that tamponade, making sure that the patient doesn't have a massive pulmonary embolism, some of these issues that we can intervene on, but we need to change the way we're managing. Once we recognize that the patient has shock, we start with our initial interventions. Can we continue to use POCUS to reassess and see how those interventions are working, or should we be moving to invasive monitoring at that point? Well, ideally, invasive arterial monitoring is, is going to be a bit better, getting that A-line in, and then focusing on maintaining your mean arterial pressure of at least 65 or whatever. We talked a little bit about this a few months ago, 65 or pushing it a little bit higher. But you can't always do this in the emergency department. If you're at a, a big tertiary care center, like in our emergency department, where we're boarding patients like crazy, yeah, we go ahead and put an A-line in a lot of these patients. But in many community hospitals, you can't. So I think the addition of POCUS becomes very important, especially in these places, because it's going to allow you to assess that cardiac output or ejection fraction response to the fluids or pressors or inotropes that you've done. And one of the other things that they mention in this article is they really emphasize the importance of serial POCUS on these patients, serial echocardiogram. And uh, I think that's going to also be very important in terms of assessing how these patients are responding to your interventions. We didn't mention it before, but one of the reasons these patients won't have frank hypotension but be in cardiogenic shock or myocardial dysfunction is the fact that they may still have some of that epinephrine that we gave them during the arrest still circulating. I've seen that a bunch of times where 
the epinephrine is supporting that blood pressure. As soon as it starts to wear off, you see the real frank shock start to set in. But now we have applied our POCUS. We're highly suspicious that this patient has cardiac dysfunction. What are the initial steps in management? Well, your initial steps are generally going to be based on what your your bedside echo is showing you. Now, Swami, I'll tell you up front, and I think for a lot of people that know me, my ultrasound skills are fairly basic. And, and there's a lot of listeners out there that are just fantastic, and they can focus circles around me, so to speak. But even with relatively basic skills, there's, you know, I'm, I'm just going to focus on what you need to know from the basic standpoint. When you look at these patients, you want to take a look at the heart. And of course, you're looking for pneumothorax and tamponade, but let's say we've ruled those out. You want to know what the heart's doing. And this will help distinguish between whether you're dealing with more of a cardiogenic patient or more of a vasoplegic type of patient. If you look at the heart and what you see is a very hypodynamic heart, and that heart is just not working well, very poor wall motion, low EF, those are the patients that you want to go to early with your inotropes, like your your dobutamine. On the other hand, if you see a very hyperdynamic heart, then it's possible that the patient is hypovolemic. So you want to look at measures of whether the tank is empty. You're looking at whether you've got IVC collapse. And in those patients, you're going to give fluids. On the other hand, if the tank looks full and they're hyperdynamic, those are the patients in whom you might want to add some vasopressors. So the ultrasound can really direct you into whether your primary therapy is going to be inotropes or your primary therapy is going to be fluids, or your primary therapy is going to be vasopressors. And then serially doing those ultrasounds will help you gauge what else you need to add along the way. But the ultrasound is so important in terms of distinguishing between that cardiogenic versus that vasoplegic type of patient. There's been a bit of a debate around what MAP we should be targeting post-arrest. You mentioned this a little bit earlier that back in November of 2022, we had a little snack talking about the BOX clinical trial that was published in August of 2022. And this was a study that was really trying to help us figure out what MAP should we be pushing these post-ROS patients to. Amal, in a nutshell, what did that study tell us? Well, essentially, what they did in that study was they compared a post-ROS mean arterial pressure goal of 63 versus 77, and they, they really didn't find any difference in terms of important outcomes from the two groups. And as I'd mentioned back when we had that discussion, there's a couple of drawbacks or limitations to that study. For me, the big limitation was that the time from ROSC to randomization into their target MAPs was two and a half hours on average. And if you're going to wait that long, you know, patients aren't going to have a great outcome either way. So that was one big drawback. And, and also, I didn't really care for the fact that they compared 63 versus 73. I mean, a difference of only 10 millimeters of mercury between the low and the high group is not a whole lot. I would have preferred if they compared 65, say, versus 85 or higher. And so I'm waiting on some type of repeat or validation study, hopefully with a more rapid randomization time. And uh, I'm curious to see what further studies show. But is, this one study, I, I think, has really not changed my practice much. Folks should go back and listen to that snack in November because we really do get a little bit deeper into this topic. But Amal, what are you doing right now? What is your target blood pressure that you're shooting for? Uh, my target blood pressure generally, you know, if I get 65 or 70, I'm happy with that. I'm not aggressively pushing it higher, except if somebody has a history of pre-existing hypertension, 
I might then go ahead and push it more to 80 or 85. And, and again, I, the fact is, honestly, I just don't know what to do. So I'm, I'm keeping it absolute minimum of 65. And I don't mind if we push it a little bit higher, especially in those hypertensive patients. And that's a sense that I get from most people. Most people are kind of saying the same thing of at least it's got to be over 65. We don't want maps of 60 or 55. That seems to be bad, but we just don't know exactly what that target is that we're going to be shooting for. And again, maybe we get better data coming out in the next couple of years that tells us this is the target blood pressure you should be shooting for. This is where we should go. We just don't have that data right now. Summary. So when we look at this article, Amal, we get a lot of real advice on what could be going on in the post-ROS patient, that they could have vasoplegic shock, they could have leaky capillaries, or this could be cardiogenic shock, using your POCUS to make the diagnosis that the patient has shock, and then on top of that, using your POCUS to guide your specific interventions. Tank full, no reason to give more fluids, but they may need a vasopressor, maybe they have that vasoplegia especially if you also look at the heart and you see that it's banging away. On the other side of it, if you see a plump IVC and the heart doesn't really seem to be doing much, maybe you need more of an inotrope. And then again, using your POCUS to reassess that heart, see what happens with your interventions to guide the next steps. I think there's a lot of really good tips in here. It's a short read, which I love. So hopefully our listeners will check out the full publication and use that to really help guide their management. We learned that ovarian torsion presents in a very specific way. Women of childbearing age, there's acute, severe pain. There's going to be these classic ultrasound findings. But actually, this can be a difficult diagnosis. And what we learn in medical school, or even what we find in the textbook, is not always correct. That is our friend, Dr. Britt Long, here to talk about ovarian torsion myths. Britt, thanks for joining us. Britt Long. So what led you to research this topic in the first place, Britt? I've had several cases that did not present in the classic way. Either there was some part of the history and the exam that didn't fit, or the imaging did not show what I thought it would. That made me start looking through the literature, and I was kind of shocked at what I found. It's not just the patient population or the presentation. It's also what we do for imaging and the treatment. If we rely on those classic teachings, we can miss a diagnosis or mismanage these patients. There are seven major myths that I want to discuss. Okay, great. Let's do it. Myth one, ovarian torsion only occurs in women of reproductive age. So Britt, traditionally, I feel like we worry about women of childbearing age with this entity because it can cost them their ovary. But it's important to realize that it can occur in other age groups. Yeah, and you're right. The most common patient population affected is reproductive-aged women. The mean age is anywhere between 29 to 33 years, and usually these patients have some form of an anexal mass or an enlarged ovary. The issue is when we don't think torsion is possible because that patient is not in that reproductive age group. Around 15% of cases can occur during infancy or childhood, and over half of these pediatric patients with torsion are going to have normal ovaries. They won't have a mass. 
postmenopausal women account for anywhere between 15 to even 25% of all cases. Most patients in this age group are going to have some form of underlying pelvic mass. It could be a cancer. The key is to think about different risk factors. The most common risk factor is an enlarged ovary over four to five centimeters. Around 80 to 85% of all cases are going to have an associated cyst or some form of mass. Another risk factor is any form of fertility therapy where they're using these ovulation induction agents. These treatments can cause ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and then they develop these large ovarian cysts. Anywhere between 8 to 12% of these patients who develop these large cysts can actually experience torsion. Other risk factors are polycystic ovarian syndrome and tubal ligation. That's probably due to adhesions. The final major one is prior torsion. Up to 11% of patients can have a recurrence. Yikes, that's pretty high. Myth two, all patients with ovarian torsion present with acute, severe pain and vomiting. So Britt, this myth worries me because I'm afraid I'm going to miss this diagnosis if the woman isn't presenting with acute, severe pain. Yeah, same here. Pain is going to be the most common symptom, and it's because of that poor blood flow to the ovary when torsion occurs. When we look at the literature, some form of abdominal or pelvic pain is present in 90% of cases, but 50% don't have that classic sudden severe pain. Patients can have gradually worsening pain. It may not be severe. It can be intermittent. There may even be pain that radiates to the back or the flank. That intermittent or gradually worsening pain is more common in patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome or patients who have large ovarian cysts. That intermittent pain is primarily because that ovary is torsing and then detorsing. The other part of that classic clinical picture is nausea and vomiting. It's present in anywhere between 47 to 70% of patients, but that means that a significant number of these patients won't have nausea and vomiting, so we can't really rely on this. The final issue with the presentation is fever. Anywhere between 2 up to 20% of patients will have a fever, and that's going to confuse the picture even more. Then we're starting to place other conditions like appendicitis, maybe tubal ovarian abscess higher on the differential. Myth 3. A normal physical exam, including pelvic exam, can rule out torsion. Now, Britt, I love a good physical exam, but with ovarian torsion, it doesn't always help me, now does it? There are so many conditions where that exam clinches the diagnosis, but torsion is definitely not one of them. You would think that all patients with torsion would have some form of tenderness on the abdominal or the pelvic exam, and many patients will have pain when you're palpating, but up to 30% have no abdominal or pelvic tenderness. You can't rule out torsion just because your exam isn't concerning. The bimanual exam is also unreliable. Patients may or may not have cervical motion tenderness. You could find uterine or anexal tenderness, maybe an anexal mass, but these just aren't always present. When we look at exams performed by emergency physicians, studies suggest that our ability to detect a pelvic mass is pretty poor. The inter-examiner reliability for detecting a pelvic mass is less than 25%, and it's less than 32% for detecting anexal tenderness. 
Now, that's us. That's emergency physicians. What about the OBGYN specialist? Well, their exams are not really much better. Their sensitivity for detecting a nexal mass over 5 centimeters is between 15 to 36%. And again, that's with the specialist performing the exam. Our ability to detect a mass is even worse if that patient is over 200 pounds and also in patients who are over age 55 years. Now, we've been talking about this ability to detect a mass on our bimanual exam, but even if it was 100%, the absence of a mass does not rule out torsion. One study found that 15% of all torsion cases had a completely normal-sized ovary, and that's even higher in pediatric patients where 50% of torsion cases have normal-sized ovaries. Myth four, normal arterial flow on Doppler ultrasound rules out ovarian torsion. So I think many of us kind of hang our hats on the imaging for this diagnosis. I get and I give signouts pretty often that say, hey, if this ultrasound is normal, the patient can go. But that is not always the case with torsion. Tell us a little bit more about this one, Britt. The first line imaging modality for torsion is a transvaginal ultrasound, and that's going to be with grayscale imaging and Doppler flow. That's for adults. In kids, you're going to use a transabdominal ultrasound. I wish this was an ironclad test, but it just isn't. Ultrasound has a specificity close to 100% if you combine several findings, but the sensitivity has a wide range. It's anywhere between 35% at the low end to the 90s at the high end, and that depends on the finding. The most common finding on ultrasound is an enlarged hypoechoic ovary. You can see an ovary displaced to the midline with some free fluid in the pelvis. The string of pearl sign is also suggestive. That's basically an enlarged ovary lined around the periphery by follicles. Colored Doppler is classically considered the most important part of the ultrasound exam. We're looking for decreased or absent intraovarian venous flow, and that's followed by absent arterial flow later in the disease. But we have to remember that torsion starts with obstruction of the lymphatic and the venous systems. Arterial flow is not affected until later in the disease course, and that's borne out in the literature. Studies suggest arterial flow is completely normal in 25 up to 54% of patients with torsion that's been confirmed in the OR. Up to two-thirds of patients have detectable arterial flow. The final ultrasound finding that I want to mention is the Whirlpool sign. That's a circular collection of blood vessels within an enlarged ovary or a mass. If this is present, it's strongly suggestive of torsion. The key is that we can't just focus on vascular flow. A normal arterial Doppler cannot rule out torsion. We need to be looking for a combination of findings on ultrasound. That's going to be an ovarian size of over 4 centimeters, free fluid within the pelvis, an ovary that's pushed towards the midline, and then also vascular flow. Considering all of these can improve our sensitivity and specificity. Okay, and in the same vein, though, I don't routinely use CT to evaluate for torsion. Myth five, 
A completely normal CT scan of the pelvis requires an ultrasound to rule out torsion. This is a big one for me. Many of these patients are going to have right lower quadrant pain. You're thinking, is this appendicitis? Is it torsion? So we go down this road of ordering both tests. We may not need to, depending on what we find with our imaging with CT of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast. CT definitely has a role in evaluating for torsion. Some common findings on CT are an enlarged ovary or an anexal mass, an anexal mass with mural thickening, free pelvic fluid, fat stranding around the ovary. There could be uterine deviation towards the torso ovary, or the ovary could be displaced towards the uterus. The problem is that these are not necessarily specific for torsion. But if you have a good story for torsion, one of these is present, the appendix looks normal, speak with OB, and then order the ultrasound. There are several findings on CT that are very specific. Those are absent or reduced ovarian enhancement with contrast, also an enlarged ovary with afollicular ovarian stroma, and peripherally displaced follicles. And then just like ultrasounds, there's the whirlpool sign. That's a twisted vascular pedicle with a thickened fallopian tube. All of these can rule in the diagnosis, especially the whirlpool sign on CT. That's pathognomonic for torsion. Now, if none of these abnormalities are present, you see a normal ovarian size, there's no cysts or mass, there's no pelvic fluid, and there's no displacement of that uterus or ovary, this sensitivity approaches 100% for excluding torsion using a CT scan. Now, Britt, sometimes we get horse blinders on with our pregnant patients. I mean, we always consider ectopic, we always consider miscarriage, but we're not always thinking about torsion in this group. Myth six, pregnant patients with lower abdominal pain should have ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage ruled out. Once this is done, the evaluation is complete. This is definitely one of the scarier populations for us. There's a wide differential here. We're thinking about ectopic pregnancy, miscarriage, also appendicitis, but we have to think about ovarian torsion in these patients. There is a higher risk of torsion during pregnancy because progesterone increases the formation of ovarian cysts, and pregnant patients account for anywhere between 10 to up to 25% of all torsion cases. Over 80% of cases in pregnancy occur in those first 17 weeks. It's usually between weeks 10 to 17. Up to 73% of these patients have undergone some form of fertility therapy. It's usually with one of those ovulation induction agents. The signs and symptoms of torsion are pretty similar between pregnant and non-pregnant women. You're going to be getting your ultrasounds and then also speaking with OB. Myth 7. Surgery is useless if the patient has had symptoms for more than just a few hours. So this one is actually a little bit more reassuring. So we have more time than we were traditionally taught? It's tough to say. Torsion is time-sensitive, but the exact timing of ovarian necrosis is not clear. There's no definitive critical ischemia time for a torsed ovary based on what we have in the current literature. Studies suggest ovarian viability ranges from several hours up to days, 
And we're talking 140 to 160 hours in some studies. Well over 30% of patients can have a viable ovary if detorsion occurs within 24 hours. Outcomes are worse with prolonged ischemia, so the earlier the ovary is detorsed, the greater likelihood of viability. The takeaway for all of this is that patients can have symptoms for days and they can still have a viable ovary. Summary. Okay, let me quickly summarize our seven learning points. One. Ovarian torsion affects women of all ages. Two. The classic presentation of ovarian torsion is not always present, and patients may have gradual onset pain, intermittent pain, or very mild pain. Nausea and vomiting may not be present at all. Three. Do not rely on a normal pelvic or bimanual examination to rule out torsion. Four. Normal arterial blood flow on Doppler ultrasound cannot rule out torsion. Consider using a combination of ultrasound findings. Five. A normal abdominal pelvic CT significantly decreases the likelihood of torsion. Certain findings on CT are in fact highly suggestive of torsion. Six. Pregnant women can experience ovarian torsion with increased risk if they're undergoing fertility treatment or have had prior torsion. Seven. Patients may have symptoms for several days and still have viable ovaries after surgery. If you're suspicious of torsion based on your history and exam, speak with your OBGYN before obtaining imaging. And if you do not have OBGYN available, consult the general surgeon on call. Man, that's perfect, Jesse. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can save anyone with epinephrine and an ET tube. Pediatric pearls. That's Eileen Claudius, and the email with that statement originated from none other than Tom Calais. Oh, Frabja's day. It's Tom Calais. Who's Tom Calais? Well, he is a pediatric intensivist at Harvard UCLA and the writer of some deep thoughts in pediatric resuscitation. Typically, pediatrics, they're arresting because of a respiratory cause, you know, whether it's a drowning, respiratory failure, whether it's a foreign body. That's typically not from coronary artery disease and ventricular fibrillation. So their hearts are fine. If you can get some air into their lungs, there's the ET tube part of it, your chances of saving them are very high. And those really sad cases where I've had to withdraw care from a child and they're not breathing, their hearts can really survive in hypoxemic conditions for 20 to 30 minutes with very, very low saturations. Their hearts are very healthy, very pristine. So just a little bit of oxygen with an ET tube is very helpful. Now, the air isn't enough. This is where the epinephrine comes in. When you're giving a large dose of epinephrine for somebody whose heart stopped, you're basically squeezing blood retrograde back up and through those coronaries to provide some kind of a substrate, some delivery of oxygen for these myocytes. So you have really a two-pronged approach to a child who's in an arrest. But if you can get an airway, get air in their lungs, provide some oxygen, you can backflow some blood into their coronaries with epinephrine. Your chances of winning are, are very high. Let's turn for a second to the patient who you suspect or even know is in cardiogenic shock. Anything different that's specific to that type of shock in a pediatric patient we should know? Kid in front of me, hypotensive, bad perfusion. What do I do? These patients are really dicey. As you've intimated, the heart's binary. It's either going or it's not. 
And when you have that patient who you suspect is in cardiogenic shock, poorly perfused, breathing away in 50, maybe needing oxygen, maybe not. In my mind, and I've had a number of these kids, they're really delicate. So for me, the most important thing to find out first before I do anything, as long as they're breathing and they're okay, this is not the crashing patient. You know what to do in that situation. Find out their history. It is so important. So let me just tell you the story. We had a girl who came in, 16-year-old, playing soccer, going to school, doing well, progressively short of breath over a two to three month period. Comes in, very tachypnic, blood pressure is still okay, not needing oxygen. Heart is enormous on x-ray, her liver is down. Her BNP was 13,500. And so she was really on the edge. But the important thing about her whole scenario was that she'd been compensating for two or three months. I mean, in, in those situations, I try to do nothing. Unless I'm in a center where I have ECMO available, I don't want to rock the boat because she has been beautifully compensating over the last three months. And in fact, the cardiologist said, well, why don't we just start a little milrinone on her? And I said, well, that's fine. Milrinone is nice. It's a uh, inotropic agent. It's good for the heart. It decreases our afterload, lowers our pulmonary vascular resistance, lowers our systemic vascular resistance. But it would put her out of balance. And if she, for instance, went into some dysrhythmias and I wasn't able to control them and she became acutely hypotensive and went into fulminant failure from a dysrhythmia, I would have no options. So I told him we need to start her at a center that has ECMO. Now, if you have the patient who is sicker than that, and, and let's say the child who has myocarditis, those children I look at a little different. You don't know how sick they're going to get. Once I determine that's a cardiac issue, the way that I think about it is kind of like ABCs. Number one, do they need to be intubated first? Because the way that I consider intubation in this clinical scenario is I'm providing a therapy. When you have a patient who is in heart failure and they're spontaneously breathing and they're generating a lot of negative pressure in their chest, sure, they're drawing in a lot of preload and, and that's fine and good. But the negative pressure is having a very adverse effect on their left ventricle. In fact, it's preventing it from emptying all the way because it's, it's pulling outward on the wall. So positive pressure can assist the emptying of the left ventricle. Now, of course, you have to pay attention to the preload and be prepared for some hypotension. If that happens, my first line will usually be epinephrine. Started a low dose of 0.08 or dopamine. Dopamine would be fine to start too. That's kind of a conventional pediatric medication. Dopamine, because it's kind of versatile. It gives some inotropy and some afterload reduction on the low ends. Double digit, it gives us some increased SVR. Or epinephrine's good because you have good inotropy. But intubation, I consider a therapy in the patient who is in cardiac failure. I have to admit, I'm a little bit terrified of intubation in these cardiac kids, and it's just based on experience of cardiac patients coding either with the induction and paralytic or shortly after the intubation. So I like the idea of having some epi on hand. That makes me feel a little bit better. I like the idea of maybe optimizing the preload if it's not optimized. Is there a magic time before their heart gets so bad that they're not going to survive the intubation, but when they're sick enough that they need it? So the timing of it is never obvious. In my mind, it's kind of like the septic patient who's saturating 100% on room air, but they're breathing in the 50s and they just look bad. When am I going to intubate them because I need to help their energetics? When am I going to intubate this cardiac patient? Sure, if they're not peeing, if their mental status is bad, then it's obvious. But typically you want to do it before you get to that point. 
once I know the etiology of the failure, then that's kind of kind of dictate how quickly or slowly I'm going to move to intubate. Let me explain. If I have a patient who has myocarditis and it's a fulminant type myocarditis, huge heart, very sick, hypotensive, hasn't been peeing for the entire day, that child is just going to get intubated whether they're desaturating or not because I know that that process is going to go on for a lot longer and potentially might need a transfer to an ECMO center. That's an easy one. Just intubate that one right away. However, if we think this is a cardiomyopathy, like this 16-year-old girl that I just mentioned, well, then you have something that's really slow moving, and you have the luxury of time, and you maybe you don't need to innovate. In fact, we did not innovate this girl. We transferred her up to a cardiac center, and she did fine on the transport because she had been compensating for so long. So here you have two hearts that are equally sick, but the story matters and the diagnosis matters. Again, is this a chronic process or is this an infectious process? And so when I have more unpredictability, and as we both know, these infections are wholly unpredictable. You know, you guys stabilize them and resuscitate them in the ER, and then I get to see how these stories unfold upstairs in the PICU. Yeah, I know there's such thing called illness scripts, but every infection is different, and it's going to do what it's going to do. So that's why the myocarditis kids, I'm a little bit quicker to go with. And when you do go to intubate, what do you use for your induction agent and paralytic? Those children coming in and out of bypass will often get very large doses of fentanyl, up to 50, 50, 50 micrograms per kilo, because it's hemodynamically pretty safe. Now, would we feel comfortable doing that in the ER? Probably not. That's a really huge dose. And until you're really used to doing that, that might be a little dicey just to go ahead and go do that. For a larger child, is there a max to that or is it literally 50 micrograms per kilo regardless of weight? It's 50 mics per kilo and there is no max. One thing that we've witnessed in the pediatric ICU is children who are on ventilators, for instance, for a really long time or children who need procedural sedation. The amount of medications per kilo that a child needs is often far greater than an adult. For instance, if I was going to sedate an eight-month-old Downs child for an MRI and I'm using propofol, I might need doses of upwards of 300 micrograms per kilo per minute just to keep the child asleep. So these doses of fentanyl drips that we have them on, sometimes we're going up to five to six micrograms per kilo per hour. So the doses that we're giving can be a thousand micrograms of fentanyl. I've seen that provided to children and they tolerate it pretty well. Versed and Atomidate both can be used at slower doses. I think Versed is a little worse for hypotension. It's unpredictable in the patient you're giving it to, but I will usually use low doses of that, and then I'll usually use a higher dose of fentanyl. During my training, I had a child come in who was a very sick cardiomyopathy as an infant. We needed to intubate him. Before the cardiologist arrived, I used Versed and I used ketamine. Ketamine has good pain control and it causes a catecholamine surge, so it increased his blood pressure. But the cardiologist came in and he was really upset. He said it causes a really acute increase in your systemic vascular resistance, so the afterload against the heart can be rapidly increased, could just cause an arrest. It made sense to me, so I don't do it anymore. I've also had kids who get funny dysrhythmias with ketamine as well. So I avoid ketamine now for these types of patients, and I'll stick with the more conventional ones. Lower dose for sed and tomidate, higher dose fentanyl. And if you're worried about the kid being tenuous before intubation, do you do fluids? Do you go ahead and just start the epi? Do you do both? How do you decide? You know, you can look at their IJ, you know, you can get the ultrasound, you can see how overloaded they are. 
I like to look at the IJ, especially with inspiration. Now, if that IJ is collapsing with each inspiration, then I know they're kind of dry. If it isn't, then I know they aren't. Is this your general approach to shock or do you view a patient with possibly septic shock, maybe undifferentiated shock differently than the cardiac patient that we just discussed? If I'm confronted with somebody who's hypotensive and they're in shock, because the two aren't closely related, they could be totally distinct. But if I have both, my thought process immediately goes to a very simple equation, and that's blood pressure is equal to cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. So pressure equals flow times resistance. We've been learning that since college. So cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. And then children, heart rate's not an issue typically. So it's really a preload, contractility, and afterload. SVR is the same thing as afterload. So you really have preload, you have contractility, you have afterload. And those are the three things that I look at to see why are they hypotensive. And in kids, it's either their heart, it's the contractility, or they're in warm shock and they have the decreased afterload, or they broke their neck and they have distributive shock. But I really try to find out where are they on the seesaw. Is their cardiac output down and the SVR up? Or is the cardiac output way up and the SVR is way down? Because it's one of the two. They're hypotensive and they're in shock. It's one of the two. And then it's up to me to figure out which of those three elements. Are they just volume down? Well, that's easy. Or is there heart failure? Well, that's a little more challenging. Or is it an afterload problem, which is going to be probably warm shock, septic shock? In that case, I'm going to target increasing the afterload. So for pediatric shock, it's fluids, beta-1 inotropy, or alpha-1 increasing the SVR. And I loved your answer to how you assess this patient in an ongoing fashion. So you do your intervention, and then you said, if the urine output is good, you were right. If the urine output is poor, there's no urine output, then either you were wrong or the disease process is gearing up to kick your butt. And I don't think butt was the exact word you used. However, that's absolutely right. Urine output. Because if we don't have any other way, we don't have continuous lactate measurements, and those aren't really reliable anyway because of the liver dysfunction can alter that. So really, urine output is it. I recently had a child who was in septic shock, has a history of overdoses, came in, which was thought to be an overdose. However, we look and all of a sudden she's needing, you know, maximum adult doses of norepinephrine and she's desaturating and she's hypotensive and turns out she's in fulmin and septic shock. No, not an overdose. Looking at her urine output, we ended up being on five different vasoactive medications. We just kept adding them on and responding when her urine output slowed down and we just tried something else. That being said, I have been in situations, like you said, kicking your butt, when everything we do is futile and the disease process is too strong. Sometimes their parts are too sick or the acidosis is too great or they're, they're in like a vasomotor type paralysis and the meds just don't do anything. And I've certainly been in those situations. And in my mind, I kind of think about it like a gear shift. Nothing's working anymore. and We have to kind of start going in a different direction. That's awesome. I think this has been really helpful for me, really helpful for those of us who don't have the luxury of a PICU. And and even for many of us who do have the luxury of a PICU, we may not have an attending in-house. And typically nobody has any beds anywhere. So having a PICU is like a museum upstairs of very smart people and sick children. But it's not actually something we're functionally going to get a patient to anytime this shifts. So this has actually been really helpful. I know we talk a lot in the adult world about bringing the upstairs downstairs. And I love the idea of doing that for pediatrics. And thank you for helping us do that. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. 
Frabjus Day, it's Tom Calais. Ketamine. I am a huge fan of ketamine. I think it is a fantastic drug and it's solved a lot of the problems that we have in our field. That is the voice of Dr. Ryan Knight, who's joined this month by Dr. Dan McCollum to talk about the pearls and pitfalls of one of our favorite drugs, ketamine. To present it as a wonder drug or something that's going to solve all of our problems, I think is fraught with consequences. And we have to respect what ketamine can do and what it cannot do if we're going to use it correctly in our patient population. In some ways, we want to discuss about the times not to use it to preserve the times that we can, because a lot of people get turned off with ketamine where they have a bad patient encounter with it or something like that. And it's remarkable how many nurses will say, oh, I I really don't want to give ketamine because this one time something awful happened. And we really want to preserve it for those cases that it is so clearly the right drug. You know, we've been using ketamine in the military population, uh, specifically in the pre-hospital environment. We've had medics on the battlefield with ketamine in their drug boxes for over 10 years now. And so we have a myriad of examples and cases where ketamine was fantastic. But we've also learned a lot of lessons about where not to use it and where we have to be very, very careful when we use it because it it does not solve all our problems and it's not that wonder drug. So Ryan, let's, let's chat a little bit about the dosing. What has your experience been? We teach our medics to use a, and it's the same thing I do in the emergency department. It's for IV or IO dosing for a pain dose. We're using 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. And we're really emphasizing and we teach you you really absolutely need to avoid that 0.4 to 0.8. Some would extend that out to a almost that one mig per kg range. Absolutely. That middle ground is in many ways exactly where you don't want to be. That's kind of the party dose of it as has commonly been described. And that middle ground, you're not getting a whole lot more analgesia than you would at the low end, but you are much more likely to dissociate them. So it's almost a recipe for an emergence reaction when you see people start dosing in that middle territory of around 0.5 mix per kick because it will not reliably dissociate the patient. Yes. And I have a, just a fantastic example of when that happened. I had a patient handed off to me when I was over in Afghanistan on one of my trips. Medic had given him ketamine in the field and he came to me. He was shot in the hand and uh, was in a lot of pain. And so I was going to give him pain medicines and he just started begging me. He literally was saying, sir, please do not give me ketamine. Do not give me ketamine again. That was horrible. And what he described to me was he said that he was in the worst nightmare of his life, but he could feel every ounce of pain that he had prior to getting the drug, but there was nothing he could do about it and he couldn't communicate it to anybody. And it was the worst experience, and he begged me to never get ketamine again. And it really opened my eyes. We kind of dissected that case later, and I think what happened was that he kind of hit into that party zone of ketamine dosing and some things that we don't necessarily think about as physicians. The concentration of ketamine that we get in the military in the field is usually 500 milligrams and in a 5 ml vial. And so you're talking about 100 milligrams per 1 ml. Now, as we're asking our pre-hospital providers to dose this, or even if we're dosing it and asking our nurses to dose this in the emergency department, obviously you have to, you have to cut that and it has to be diluted. But even that doesn't give exact dosing. And, and when you're talking about small dosages like 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, you're getting into very small doses with very high concentrations. And that's difficult to do, but it's not something we normally think about as physicians. 
Ketamine comes in a, in a variety of concentrations. The three most common are the 100 per ml, the 50 milligrams per ml, and the 10 milligrams per ml. And I don't know about you, Dan, but in my shop, I don't really ever see the 10 milligrams per ml. I, I believe that we have both of the um, higher concentrations. One that is preferentially used for IM, that, that very concentrated form, and then the other for IV, that it's that intermediate ground. But I, I agree, much like all the headaches that have happened through the years with epinephrine being in a variety of different formulations, you got to be really, really careful uh, with this, especially when you apply it to a new environment, you know, pre-hospital personnel or something like that. It, it can be really tricky. One, we're setting ourselves up for an error and grabbing that wrong concentration. But also, it's very difficult for the nurses to dose these things. So say you have a 70 kilo person, even just 70 kilos, that 0.1 dose, is, that's, that's just seven milligrams. Try getting that out of a hundred milligram per ml <laughs> vial. It's, it's difficult to do. And you see how we very easily get into that party range that we're trying to avoid. We don't mean to do it, but even giving such small doses, the other thing that can happen is it can get stuck there in the lure lock. Uh, so there's a lot of problems there. So I tend to go to the 0.1 to 0.15 mix per kg range, and then I can redose it in 20 or 30 minutes if I don't get to where I want to be. I have had some folks that, that have gotten into bad places when you get closer to that 0.3 mix per kg. And so just as an added little safety area, I just go on the low side and then I can always give more, but you can't really take it away. Another thing that you might consider doing to avoid that hole as it's stuck in the, the IV tubing thing is I really like spiking this into, you know, a hundred ml little mini bag of crystalloid or something like that. You know, it, it forces a couple of things. It makes sure that, that you're diluting it down enough to where you're, you're getting it how you want it. But it also sort of stops that, that push phenomenon, because that was the next thing I wanted to chat with you about, about some of the headaches can happen if, uh, if someone administers it too quickly. The first time I saw this actually was working in the emergency department, and I wrote a pain dose for ketamine, and the nurse came back and said the patient was disassociated. So I went to the bedside, and sure enough, he was laying there completely disassociated. Uh, we rechecked the dosing and we gave the right dose. But in hindsight, again, what we learned was it was given too quickly. And if you read the package insert on ketamine, it actually says to give it over 60 seconds. I don't know about you, but how many times have you <laughs> seen somebody actually give a medicine over 60 seconds? That's a long <laughs> time to be pushing something. And also, uh, there's not a ton of literature on this, but it's also been my clinical experience that when someone does push that ketamine more quickly, we tend to see not only dissociation, but some of the, the things that are associated with like peri-intubation use of ketamine, that when it's really pushed in quickly, that I've seen more cases of apnea because of how quickly it hit if someone really does slam it in fast. And then the first few times I use it when I'm at a new shop or not familiar working with that nurse, I like to just remind them like, hey, this really needs to go in slow, you know, 60 seconds or more. And if there's any doubt, just spike it into a 100 ml bag and, and give it that way. One other group that I've gotten more and more cautious with is that ketamine seems to work better the younger you are. That's not just pediatrics where it obviously does a great job, but older patients tend to have a lot more side effects from this. They tend not to like it. And just chatting with folks before a procedural sedation, you know, a lot of those 20 and 30 year old folks, they're kind of curious a little bit about what's this going to feel like during a procedural sedation. And they're a lot more apt to, to really not mind it. We know from some studies by Motov that we can uh, cite in the show notes the side effect uh, profile is a lot higher for analgesic dosing in uh, elderly patients. Have some extra caution with that older crowd because of ketamine, just not treating them the same as the younger adults. So do you adjust your uh, dosage or how you give it based on that patient population? I give it lower and slower if I, for whatever reason, have to use ketamine in the older folks. But disproportionately, I, I would prefer to either use propofol, you know, if I'm doing a procedural sedation 
or to just avoid it for analgesic dosing, that I would rather use other analgesics in them. You have a drug box, you have multiple medications in it for a reason. And the trick is that there's not a, a one tool that works for every job. You have to pick the right tool for the right job. And I think that's a great example there of with the elderly population, probably just pick a different tool because of some of those other problems that it brings with it. The last little pearl I would say is try it as much as possible to actually optimize the environment that they're in. If you can take an extra moment to actually chat with the patient, explain what's going to happen, that lack of surprise that this may make them feel a little bit different has gone a long way in my experience of actually decreasing the, the negative effects because they are aware that something will happen. We work very closely in the military with our flight paramedics, and I had the benefit of working with a similar unit almost every time. And eventually they started coming to us and saying, hey, can you please stop giving them ketamine before you hand them off? And we had previously been teaching our medics that it's going to be a while before they get pain medicines when you do a handoff. So go ahead and redose them right before a helicopter lands. That way, as they're getting transitioned on the aircraft and all these things are happening, they're not going to be in a ton of pain. But what was happening was that we were taking away the mental status of the patient by doing that because now a medic is reassessing a patient on an aircraft and has lost mental status, lost communication, lost the ability to ask questions of their patient. And so we actually started teaching, unless absolutely necessary, don't take away the patient's mental status before a transition in care. I know there's some debate about the increased intubations in the emergency department with pre-hospital ketamine. I just wonder if that is a piece of it, is that if we are getting patients transitioned to us in the emergency department and we can't assess their mental status, we're also trained as emergency physicians to think of the worst thing possible. And I wonder if that is at least a piece of why we're seeing a spike in the literature or at least a blip there, but also not to do it to our colleagues when we hand them off upstairs. No, I, I think you're absolutely on it. We, we do see a clear signal in the literature that the use of pre-hospital ketamine is associated with the increase in intubation. Now, what we don't know is, did these patients absolutely have to be intubated? Or was it just that they were, you know, they had a decreased mental status, a lower GCS score, and then someone came along and said, well, I, I see a low GCS, we're going to tube them. But I think that that handoff of making sure that we're all on the same team, having that conversation with your flight crews versus your ground crews, Things like that is absolutely essential. And that way we're all on the same page and we could hopefully decrease like over intubations while also dialing the patient in to make the next chain in the link of the survival not miserable. What patients do you choose and preferably go for ketamine? The one that, that really is a practice changer for me the last few years is the use of IM ketamine in the actively combative psych patient. So if someone is really like actively wrestling with some cops as they're brought in and, and they, they do not respond to verbal de-escalation and you just know that it's actually a safety situation, I think there is no substitute, in my opinion, for five mg per kg of IM ketamine. That's where that higher dose really helps you out so you're not giving a large volume. There's nothing faster that we can give. The pitfall for this is I see some people reach for like the kind of annoying patient, the one that's like running his mouth but not actively being violent to anybody. The rough metric that I advise is that if you would be happy with snapping your fingers and the patient was magically intubated right now, but you knew that you'd have to like wean them off and extubate them in a few hours, would you be content with that situation? And if the answer is yes, because they're so actively harmful to themselves and others around them, then I think this IM ketamine is huge. It's the, the perfect move. If someone is just, you know, they're running their mouth a little bit and they need to chill out, there's a load of other agents that we could use, you know, everything from olanzapine to haloperidol. There's lots and lots of other options that we have, and it would be more appropriate to use that instead of ketamine. 
are you doing the math with that and doing five mix per kg and trying to estimate their weight? Or do you have kind of a standard go-to dosing that's probably going to roll off your tongue in that situation? For the more regular size adult, it's going to be around 400 and then it caps at 500. So if they're really, really big, give them 500. Since you're intentionally dissociating them, the high-end therapeutic index of ketamine is, is really safe. You know, if you accidentally give way, way too much, but you actually get them to dissociate, they just dissociate longer without a huge uptick in the number of complications that you see. You definitely do not want to underdose these folks, although there is some literature showing that, for example, one to two migs of IM ketamine might work. I'm just not a huge fan of that because there's so little downfall to actually just, just dosing them aggressively. But don't go above 500 migs. Are there any patient populations you really love ketamine for? If my emergency department is totally chaotic and I have 50 things going on that are all critical and one of them happens to be a a sedation or I have new staff or folks that I haven't worked with and I haven't gained a lot of trust, I'm not necessarily going to use something like propofol or another agent because I know ketamine is so safe and I know I can get away with it. Yes, it may not be as quick, but that's okay because if I can't give it my 100% attention, I'm also going to be okay because it's ketamine and it's it's pretty safe bet. I don't want to sound like I'm being cavalier with it by any stretch of the imagination because I'm like you said, you have to be happy with the patient requiring an airway. However, I also know that it it, it is a very safe medicine. I do tend to preferentially choose it during procedural sedations because it, it's just so super safe. I love it for procedural sedations, especially the slightly longer ones. If you've got a, a pediatric lack repair that's going to take you a minute to do, you know, I, I don't like having to, to play with the propofol over and over again. And as we increasingly suffer from the opioid epidemic and you see more and more folks that are either very opioid tolerant or that might be on partial agonists like buprenorphine, this can actually be a very, very useful agent that kind of sidesteps those receptors um, so that you're actually getting good analgesia. And I've had very good success with pain control in that group. Yeah, just in general, those situations when our nursing staff is having to go back and redose narcotics over and over again for something, it is a wonderful option in that I have had longer effects out of it than, say, using something like morphine or hydromorphone when giving ketamine. It, I, I don't know if the pharmacology is just hanging around with it or if it's a bit of the psychological effect you get from it as well. Summary. Just to summarize, Ryan, it, it sounds like both of us are huge fans of it to get quick control of, for example, a psychiatric patient. But we want to make sure that in the patients that we're not fully dissociating, that we're just using that lower analgesic dose, that we steer closer to that 0.1 to 0.2-ish mix per kg range. Definitely not wanting to get above 0.3 mix per kg because that's where that party dose can happen. We want to give it slow by either uh, sinking it in some fluids or just reminding the nurse to, to give it over that, that slow 60-second push to avoid some of those complications. And then choosing our patients well, the ones that will do great with it, such as pediatrics versus the elderly population where we're going to be a little bit more hesitant. Like you said, I'm, I'm a fan of it. However, I also am not a fan of it being portrayed as some wonder drug that's going to solve all of our problems because I have seen that not be the case. And, and I think we all as physicians, we need to respect what the drug can do and what it cannot do and use it appropriately at all times. Respect the ketamine. I I couldn't uh, agree more, and I I really appreciate you taking some time with us. Thanks for your time today, Dan. Respect the ketamine. What we're taught doesn't always fit how these patients present, and your case is the perfect example. You have a sick patient, or it might be a patient with a nonspecific, maybe a strange presentation, 
you check some labs, and then you find that anemia and thrombocytopenia. It's kind of like we stumble into this diagnosis. Grit Those melodious tones belong to none other than Britt Long sitting down with our very own Jesse Warner to discuss TTP, thrombotic, thrombocytopenic purpura, the diagnosis that we are backing into. They are going to give us the tools to approach this diagnosis head on instead of just stumbling into the diagnosis. So, Britt, let's start by going all the way back to the pathophysiology, because this is a complex disease process. Pathophys. What is at the root of TTP? The major player in TTP is this metalloproteinase called ADAMTS13. ADAMTS13 cleaves von Willebrand factor multimers into smaller functional units. And just as a reminder, von Willebrand factor basically helps platelets stick together and form a cohesive clot. And in TTP, there's basically not enough ADAMTS13 or it just doesn't function like it's supposed to. The magic number is 10%. If less than 10% of ADAMTS13 is functioning, then those large multiplers are not broken into smaller functioning units. And that's where we have a problem. Those large multimers circulate in the bloodstream, they collect platelets, they start to block blood vessels, they cause ischemia, and then the red blood cells hemolyze as they try to pass the sites of obstruction. The end result is first that classic microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, second is severe thrombocytopenia, and third is ischemic injury to multiple organ systems. Now, overall, when we look at the data, this is not a common disease. The incidence in adults is around two to four cases per million patients. Most patients are going to be between the ages of 30 to 50 years. It can occur in kids, but pediatric patients account for less than 10% of cases. The biggest issue with TTP is the mortality. If we don't make this diagnosis, mortality can reach over 90%. But if we make that diagnosis, we begin the treatment, mortality decreases to 4 to 30%. And this just shows how important it is for us in the ED to make this diagnosis. So is TTP a primary disorder or is it the result of another underlying process? It's kind of complicated. There's an acquired form and a hereditary form. The hereditary form is genetic. It's more common in kids. In adults, acquired TTP is way more common. It's about 30 times more frequent than the hereditary form. Acquired TTP is usually due to some antibody or some other issue with ADAMTS13. There's usually some sort of trigger with this acquired form. It could be an autoimmune disorder, maybe an immunocompromised state like HIV, cancer, cirrhosis, obesity, sepsis, pregnancy, even medications like Plavix or Clopidogrel. Now you think about an everyday shift, these are the exact patients that we see. Presentation. I can't tell you for sure if I've seen this or if I've seen it and missed it, but I can tell you that I've been tested on this. And they always have a young woman, maybe 30 to 50 years old, because they usually have some sort of autoimmune disease. And then they give us this classic pentad. Tell us about the presentation that we need to be keyed on when we're making this diagnosis. How is it actually going to present when we're not just taking a board exam? 
I'm really glad you bring up that classic pentad. And just so you don't have to look this up, it's fever, anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal injury, and then some neurologic issue. The problem is that this pentad is not reliable. It's present in less than 7% of cases. Many of the findings associated with TTP are transient and not all occur at the same time. Patients usually will present with an abrupt onset of symptoms over a couple days, but most patients are not going to come in with TTP stamped across their forehead. It's just not going to be easy. Now, the vast majority will have fatigue and malaise, but that classic fever is present in only about 10% of cases at the time of presentation. Neurologic symptoms are very common. About 40% will have a major neurologic issue like coma, a focal neurologic deficit, seizure, or a stroke. Another 25% will have more minor issues like a headache or maybe even transient confusion. Petechiae and purpura are present in about half of cases, but active bleeding is pretty rare. You may also see some jaundice because of the significant hemolysis that's going on within the patient's body. Now, there are a couple other important organ systems that we need to think about, and that would be the GI and the cardiac systems. Most people don't associate the GI system with TTP, but about 70% will have GI symptoms, and that could be abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, even diarrhea. Over 20% of patients with TTP can also have chest pain. You might find arrhythmias, an MI, even cardiogenic shock. Yikes. Labs. So these patients are going to be sick. And of course, we're going to get a bunch of tests, especially if we're thinking TTP. What tests or features actually clinch this diagnosis? We need to think TTP in a patient with a hemoglobin of less than 10 and a platelet count of less than 150,000. And this is one of the biggest takeaways, that anemia and thrombocytopenia in a sick patient. Mega Pearl. That last thing Britt said is so important, we have to state it again. If you have a sick patient and you see thrombocytopenia and anemia, think about TTP. If we just do that, we are much more likely to catch these cases, even if we're not making the diagnosis in the emergency department. When we're handing that patient over to our intensivist, we can just say, hey, I noticed this patient has anemia and thrombocytopenia. I'm thinking TTP might be at play. And that simple sentence can really set the patient down the right path. If you obtain an LDH, that's going to be very high, almost out of proportion because of the hemolysis and the tissue ischemia. Reticulocyte counts and the indirect bilirubin will also be elevated. If you obtain a peripheral smear, you're going to see over 1% schistocytes. And one of the classic associations that we haven't talked about yet is renal injury and even renal failure. The problem is that when we look at the data, Renal injury and renal failure are not necessarily going to be occurring in all cases. Less than 5% of patients will have renal failure, and around 45 to 50% will have a mild elevation in creatinine, maybe some proteinuria, but the rest of cases will have completely normal renal function. The other important laboratory test is going to be a coagulation panel and a fibrinogen level. These should be normal in TTP. These are important because this is where TTP significantly differs from some other conditions like DIC. In DIC, you're going to have an abnormal coagulation panel, and you'll also see an abnormal fibrinogen level. In TTP, these are going to be normal. HUS is the other hematologic emergency. In HUS, they're going to have more severe renal injury, 
The creatinine is usually going to be over 2, but they won't have that severe thrombocytopenia that we see in TTP. The definitive test for TTP is going to be an atom TS13 activity level and an anti-atom TS13 antibody test. The activity level in TTP is going to be less than 10%. In most places, these are going to be send-out tests. They're not going to come back while the patient's in the ED. Now, Jesse, I know you're probably sitting there wondering, wow, he just mentioned a bunch of different labs, a couple other conditions. Is there a score that can help us? And there are a couple scores that can potentially be used to help us when we're looking for TTP. One of the more reliable ones is a plasmic score. This score consists of a platelet count less than 30,000, that's the P. L is lysis of cells, that's hemolysis with reticulocytes and an elevated indirect bilirubin. A is active cancer with treatment in the last year. S is a solid organ or a stem cell transplant history. M is an MCV less than 90. I is an INR of less than 1.5. And C is a creatinine of less than 2. When we look at the score, if you have four or less points, that's low risk. Think about some other conditions. If you have a score of five, that's intermediate risk, but it's still worrisome. For these patients, you're going to need to speak with your hematology specialist and then also send that confirmatory testing. For those with a score of six or higher, those patients are high risk. This is probably TTP. These patients speak with their hematology specialists, but they're going to need definitive therapy. That score of six or higher has a sensitivity of 85% and a specificity of 89% for the diagnosis. This sensitivity is not high enough to exclude the diagnosis. And when we look at guidelines, the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis does not recommend a score, but that plasma score can potentially help you think about the disease. I really appreciate how you went through not only the tests that we're going to think about, but also the other disease processes that have some overlap, like DIC, like HUS, and how we might differentiate those. So thank you for that. And for our listeners who are interested in that plasmic score, please check that out because you talk about it in your review article, which was published in 2021 in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Management. But Britt, you said before that this is typically going to result from some other primary pathology. So aside from finding that specific disease process and treating it, what else should we be focused on for treatment for these patients? There are several key components that we need to focus on when it comes to management. The first one, like you mentioned, is addressing that underlying etiology and the end organ dysfunction. And that's where we're going to shine. The second key component is that if you think TTP is a possibility, speak with your hematologist and also your intensivist. The hematologist will help you with further testing and deciding on the definitive therapy. And that's going to be plasmapheresis and steroids. Both of these reduce mortality, and they're really the cornerstone of therapy. Remember, the pathophysiology of TTP involves these autoantibodies and not enough functioning atom TS13. Plasmapheresis removes those inhibitory antibodies and it replaces the non-functioning atom TS13 with functional atom TS13 from donor plasma. Now, many of us don't work at centers where we have readily available plasmapheresis. So you're probably going to need to transfer that patient. If plasmapheresis is going to be delayed by at least six hours, you can potentially give the patient FFP. This has some functional atom TS13, but it doesn't remove those atom TS13 inhibitors like plasmapheresis, so FFP is not considered a definitive therapy. 
Steroids are the other major component. These reduce production of those Adam TS13 autoantibodies. Current guidelines recommend using one milligram per kilogram per day of methylprednisolone. That's pretty close to our standard 125 milligrams that we give in most patients. If the patient continues to decline in the ICU and they're not improving, they may receive up to one gram of methylprednisolone. There are also some other therapies the ICU may administer like rituximab, but we won't be providing this in the ED. You know, one of the big questions in management that always comes up is transfusion. Now, do I want to transfuse with the same thresholds that I typically use? Fill us in on the idea of transfusion here. Even with the anemia and thrombocytopenia, overall bleeding is very rare. And for the most part, transfusions are not necessary. Platelet transfusion used to be thought to cause a significant amount of harm. The common quote was that you're feeding the fire. The more current evidence suggests no increase in mortality with platelet transfusions. I'm not telling you to transfuse a patient if they're not bleeding. Don't give them platelets just to treat that number. But if the patient does have severe bleeding, they need to undergo an invasive procedure, and they have severe thrombocytopenia, then you can consider transfusing the patient platelets. But again, for the most part, these patients don't need transfusion. The final key therapy is folic acid. Remember, these patients have significant hemolysis. And then venous thromboembolic prophylaxis. About 14% of patients will end up having a thrombotic event. If the patient has a platelet count over 50,000, then we potentially can use some form of heparin. But if they have a platelet count of less than 50,000, then they'll just need graded compression stockings. Graduated compression stockings. Summary. This is a rare disease, but if we don't think about it, we are not going to diagnose it. And it is usually secondary to another primary process. Patients are generally pretty sick, and this disease carries a high morbidity and high mortality. Now, the classic pentad of purpura, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, fever, neurologic abnormalities, and acute renal injury is rare, but... About 40% of patients do have major neurologic symptoms, and petechiae and purpura may be present in about half of our patients, and GI symptoms are common. We need to get a lot of labs, and we definitely need to call for help from our hematologist and our intensivist friends. Management involves plasmapheresis and steroids. We don't generally need to transfuse these patients but they might need some anticoagulation. Does that sum it up? That's perfect. I couldn't have said it better myself, Jesse. Going on a long flight in the middle seat between those two sleeping fat guys? Is your blood thickening just thinking about that trip? Well, don't let blood clots ruin your vacation. Get graduated compression stockings. Even the Cochrane Review thinks they work, and that's saying something. Graduated compression stockings. The sock that stops the clot. It's time for the Ultra Ultra Summary. Her name is Megan Fix. My name is Mel Herbert. Let's get into it. Abstract one. Let's start out with a super important paper. This is abstract number one. Aggressive or moderate fluid resuscitation in acute pancreatitis. This was in the New England Journal and is really important to know about. So fluids have come up a lot recently, especially in SIRS and sepsis. We've covered multiple different papers showing that an aggressive fluid strategy of giving too much fluids probably leads to worse outcomes. This paper focused on acute pancreatitis, 
And they were looking at essentially an aggressive fluid strategy versus a moderate fluid strategy. This was a very well done multi-center randomized controlled trial of many countries, really well done. And the aggressive group on average received a lot of fluids. A 20 cc per kilo bolus plus maintenance in the average would be about eight liters of fluids in two days. Compare that to the moderate group, which received a 10 cc per kilo bolus only if they were hypovolemic, and then maintenance fluids at half the rate, and they received about 5.5 liters on average. So what did they find? Well, they actually had to stop the study early because the patients in the aggressive fluid resuscitation group did poorer. So they stopped it early for safety concerns. And this is similar to what we found with the other studies looking at sepsis and SIRS, etc. And so the bottom line is that patients with an acute pancreatitis, you want to give some fluids if they're hypovolemic, but probably not the aggressive fluid strategy that we've been taught for many years. Probably aim for a more moderate, and the bolus was 10 cc's per kilo. Abstract 3. So abstract 3 was serious bacterial infections in young infants with positive urine results. So you know, right, if you've got a kid less than 28 days, it's, you know, draw every blood culture, do every inflammatory marker, do an LP, give them antibiotics, watch them for a while, hope it's all negative, send them home, and most of them are fine. Thank you very much. But what about, and this is from the pecan groups, so you know it's good, what about if you're doing your workup and you find a positive urine analysis? Can you just stop there? We would really like to just stop there, wouldn't we? Like, okay, it's a UTI. We're good. We'll treat him. We'll send him home. We'll follow him up. It's all good. Well, they say after analyzing one of their large febrile kid studies that under the age of 28 days, you still got to admit them. You still got to do the other tests and you still got to watch them. But they did find that in the subset where they were urine test positive, that none of those kids had meningitis. And so it is possible that we might be able to throw out the LP at least if everything else about the kid looks good and they've got a positive urine culture. You might be in the future be admitting these kids without having to do an LP because it seems that the positive LP in that circumstance is pretty low. But I would suggest that you come up with a department guideline before you start implementing that because that is fairly cutting edge. Abstract 5. Implementation and facilitation of post-resuscitation debriefing, a comparative crossover study of two debriefing frameworks. So we've seen over the years that post-resuscitation or post any emotionally charged or challenging event in the emergency department can be super valuable, both for the providers involved to be able to emotionally process the event and obtain support, but also in terms of QI. So trying to identify gaps or systems processes that could be improved. So we know this is important, but I will be first to say that this is difficult to do, especially if you haven't had training, professional or even in your training program, how to actually do this. And fortunately, there are quite a few tools out there that are designed to help guide these post-resuscitation or post-emotionally charged events. And these tools vary. There are two tools that these authors specifically looked at, the DISCERN tool. This tool is specifically targeted to try and really improve performance. So what can we do to improve whatever happened in this uh, encounter, this resuscitation? They compared that against this PCP tool, which is called the Postcode Pause. Now this tool is a little different. It focuses more on the emotional well-being of the team members. There are actually other tools out there too. Sanjay and Mike uh, covered something called the Take Stock tool in EMA in 2021 as well. So the bottom line from this study is that 
there's not really one tool that's better than the other. They're just different. And it's probably a good idea for all of us to try and look at some of these tools and make protocols or think about what we would like to use based on, again, what the tool is made for. So think about it. Try to do resuscitation debriefing in your emergency department and know that there are tools out there that can help us all do this better. Abstract 4. Abstract 4 could just be called another nail in the coffin. It's temperature control after in-hospital cardiac arrest, a randomized trial. So this was a big trial, the TTM2 trial. So this is patients in the hospital, cardiac arrest, randomized to receive cooling versus no cooling. And guess what? It didn't work. So I remember doing these initial papers on cooling and cardiac arrest. I can't remember, was it 2004 with Rick Bucatera on EMA? And we said at the time, look, if this turns out to be true, this is huge. This is like the first intervention in somebody in cardiac arrest who doesn't wake up that we've ever had, but we have to wait for bigger and better trials. Well, over the last 15 years or more, we've had bigger and better trials and the bigger and better trial says it doesn't work and it's very disappointing. And yes, we should be aggressive about controlling temperature. So a fever turns out to be bad after you've had a cardiac arrest, but the routine cooling of patients really is pretty dead. And that's true whether it's an outpatient or an inpatient. It's had its time and it is no more. Abstract six. Next up is abstract number six, influence of age on the diagnosis of myocardial infarction. This is in circulation by Mike's favorite group, the High Stakes Investigators. And it's spelled like steak, steak that you would eat, S-T-E-A-C-S. Regardless, this paper is about high-sensitivity troponins, which either have or will come to a group near you. I don't happen to be fortunate enough to use these yet, but apparently there are gender cutoffs at the 99th percentile for positive. So this is on the order of 34 nanograms per liter in men and 16 nanograms per liter in women. Now, as we age, the specificity of these cutoffs goes down, right? Because as you age, those are their comorbidities and other things that take into effect to maintain the 99th percentile for sensitivity of detecting positive, you have a lot of false positives and the specificity goes down. So wouldn't it be nice if we could use age-adjusted cutoffs for the high sensitivity troponin as we do for D-dimer? I personally find that really helpful in many situations. So these authors took the initial study with about 5,000 people with true MIs from Scotland and moved the needle and tried to age adjust those thresholds at different ages. And they don't actually specify what the cutoffs are, but they move those cutoffs up. And as we predicted, the specificity went up. However, the sensitivity went way down in the order of like 50% sensitive, which is really not helpful in the emergency department, right? Because you would miss half of the MIs at higher levels if you were using these higher cutoffs. So the bottom line is use your age-adjusted D-dimer, but do not expect that you can use age-adjusted high-sensitivity troponins anytime soon. Abstract 9. Abstract 9 that they covered is important because of the RSV epidemic we've got right now. Like RSV is way worse than COVID at the moment. High flow nasal cannula in bronchiolitis at a pediatric emergency and trends and outcomes. So high flow nasal cannula has become a big thing. And obviously during COVID has become a huge thing and really useful in some patients. But this article sort of asked the question, it's a retrospective study that went back and looked and said, well, how often are we using high flow nasal cannula in bronchiolitis now versus before? And can we see any trends that suggest that patients are doing better? And in this study, they really didn't find that. Now, this is a problem. The methodology isn't great. 
Because really what you'd want to do is a randomized controlled trial. That's probably not going to happen if you've got a hypoxic kid with bronchiolitis at this stage. Most people are going to put these patients on high-flow nasal cannula because we've gotten so used to it and it tastes great and less filling. But there is actually no good evidence that it works. And this study did not find any evidence that it works. And in fact, it found that the patients were much more likely to be admitted. As you can imagine, oh, the kid is requiring high-flow nasal cannula. Maybe they need to uh, be in the PICU. But it turns out a lot of these kids actually weren't hypoxic, significantly hypoxic at any time and were still put on high-flow nasal cannula. And in some hospitals, maybe not in these hospitals that they studied, but in some hospitals, as soon as you put a kid on high-flow nasal cannula, they've got to go to the PICU. So this is a reminder that just because we think something should work, we really need good data to know if it's going to work. So I expect that we're going to see more here. Bronchiolitis is really a problem because there's really nothing that's been proven to work. All we do is sort of suck the boogers out of these kids but there hasn't really been anything definitively shown to change the outcomes. And that's a problem because, unfortunately, and if I've got the math right after talking to so many of you, we're seeing about a trillion patients with bronchiolitis, RSV, badness, in the last few months. Abstract seven. All right, abstract number seven. Defining the learning curve for endotracheal intubation in the emergency department. So this was a really interesting study. I love airway. I love talking about airway. It's one of our defining procedures that we are expert at. And we have to become expert with practice, right? This is, as they call, a psychomotor skill. And the point of this paper was really to try and determine how many intubations you have to do before becoming proficient. So the ACGME says that we need to perform 35 intubations during residency in order to graduate, in order to become proficient. Now, is 35 the right number? Hmm, who knows? So these authors from South Korea actually have a really robust method of monitoring their trainees. They apparently have a recorder observing every resident intubation, and they actually caught every single resident intubation over seven years. And this was about 2,000 patients. So they looked at all the data and essentially they did a bunch of fancy math and came up with a model that predicted, wait for it, we need 119 intubations to become proficient. Now that's a lot higher than 35 and the true number is probably somewhere in between, right? Some people may have previous skill, may have a variety of different intubations that they learned from, etc. So Sanjay makes a really important point that this study is modeling. It is not actually real-world numbers that we can use. And they also really used a very, very conservative definition of what proficient means. And so the bottom line here is I think more practice is better as far as procedural skills. We should probably do more than 35, but I don't think anybody is going to change the ACGME numbers to 120 just yet. Abstract 11. And finally, for me, Abstract 11, Diagnostic Accuracy of Point of Care Ultrasound Pocus for Shoulder Dislocations and Reductions in the Emergency Department, a Diagnostic Randomized Controlled Trial. This was in the Emergency Medicine Journal. It's from Malta, and it had 1,200 patients in it. And the question was, you got somebody with a shoulder injury, you do your physical exam, and you say, is it broken or not broken? Is it dislocated? Is it not dislocated? And in this study, they found that the addition of point of care ultrasound made a huge improvement to that clinical assessment. It got really, really good when you used ultrasound in addition to doing a physical exam. Now, Sanjay points out that he's just not ready to not do this yet, even though this was a well-done, very big study. He's still going to be getting x-rays, and I think that's true for most of us. It's going to take a while for us to say we don't need to get an x-ray because 
your ultrasound is negative. He does bring up one point that I think is really very useful. You've got that person with a dislocated shoulder. You think it's back in, but you're not sure. And if you've sedated them, you have to let the sedation wear off a lot before you can send them to x-ray to get the x-ray. And then they come back. And then if it's not in, you have to sedate them again. In that circumstance, putting an ultrasound on and saying, yeah, it's back in would make you feel better. Okay, wake them up and send them over for your post-reduction film. I can also tell you that my work in places that are low income, when I am in uh, the outback of Kenya, ultrasound is available, x-rays much less so. So depending on your practice setting, this might actually uh, make you feel comfortable enough to say, I don't think there's anything bad going on in there. And the ultrasound also suggests there's nothing bad going on in there. That's probably enough in those circumstances to stop. Abstract 15. Next is abstract number 15, prevalence and sources of duplicate information in the electronic medical record. This was in JAMA. So I have to be honest, this one kind of blew my mind a little bit. Now, we've all experienced hassles with the electronic medical record, and the main focus of this paper is duplicative information. So think about it. You're looking up someone's notes, you're caring for them, and you notice that many of the notes that you're reading are literally copied and pasted from previous notes. And the authors of this study wanted to identify how often text in medical record notes are actually completely duplicated from previous notes. So they looked at, get this, over 1 million medical record notes in the UPenn health system, which equates to 32 billion words. Okay, that's a lot of words. So they reviewed this. They did a lot of cool stuff with AI and linguistics to try and review all of these billions of words. And what they found is that over half, so 50.1% of all of the words and clinical text in notes are duplicated. Now of that half that's duplicated, about half come from your own notes. So somebody We'll copy something from their own previous note, but the other 46% are from somebody else's note, which is kind of plagiarism. So Sanjay and Mike really have a great discussion about this paper. It's been reviewed also in PCMA, Primary Care Medical Abstracts. So really, really interesting stuff. The problem is, is that there's not really a solution at this point because we're so invested in the way that our medical records are. So the next time you're looking at a medical record, just think, about half of it is probably duplicative. Her name was Megan Fix, my name is Mel Herbert. This was the Ultra Ultra Summary. I gotta tell you one thing, and I haven't told you for a while, but I gotta tell you again right now. You need to listen to all of EMA every month, multiple times, because then you become what? Wait for it, that's right. Ultra Legend. People will look at you. People will want to touch you, frankly. You'll know everything that there is to know, but that will only occur if you listen to the whole show. If you listen to it multiple times, I can't say it enough. Do it. Do it now. Do it. Just do it. Mail call. All right, everybody. It is time for February's mailbag, and this is coming from the home office in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. What a great name for a town, Jim Thorpe. Probably the greatest athlete in American history, so great to honor him. In a little town called Jim Thorpe, where the mountains rise up tall, they say the sky's bluer than a baseball. And uh, Jan, I'm going to tell you that I found out after we relocated to Jim Thorpe that Haney Malamut happens to have a home in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. So how about that? One of our own faculty 
has a home in Jim Thorpe. Really? Yep. That is fascinating. Absolutely. <laughs> it's amazing how these little towns come up and then you find out that you actually know someone who lives there. But let's take it to the mailbag because, Jen, we got a lot of feedback, some positive, some not so positive, on the medical legal briefs over the last couple of months. I personally really like these pieces. A couple of the notes that we got really focus on how difficult it can be to make some of these diagnoses and that we may be creating some kind of an unattainable standard. We sent all of those over to Mike, and Mike has some thoughts. Mike thoughts. Imagine you're at a peer review or a M&M conference at your hospital discussing a patient with a headache who had elevated blood pressure, no red flags, and who bounced back with a intracranial hemorrhage. Should policy be changed based on this case to make sure it doesn't happen again? Or maybe change the ED protocol that every patient with elevated blood pressure with a headache now needs a CAT scan. Of course, who wants to have their hands tied behind their back with any of these recommendations based on just one case? I'm Mike Weinstock, and I'd like to share my thoughts on how we best learn from cases. There's three categories. One is the esoteric case, the one that your friend says, hey, that's so weird, so unusual, I'm going to write it up. Maybe even our headache patient could qualify-ish, or 25-year-old chest pain patient with two days of constant pain, negative ED evaluation, who bounces back with a STEMI, or a patient with acute gastroenteritis who has no fever, no focal abdominal findings, and who comes back with an appy. My contention is that the learning value from these cases would be mostly to think about a differential diagnosis or how we best do data gathering with our history or exam plus minus testing, but to be very cautious when using these rare cases to change our clinical practice. The second category is the case that's so obvious that it's questionable whether there's any really great teaching value. For example, think about the twins, and this was in the news, so there's no HIPAA violations, of Dennis Quaid. They received 10,000 units of heparin as opposed to the normal 10 units for an IV flush. Teaching value? Okay, I guess. Um, don't give incorrect doses of medications? Yeah, of course, it's important to do. But for us as seasoned clinicians, is that really something that we're going to sit through a M&M conference for 30 or 60 minutes to have someone tell us, well, don't make mistakes. <laughs> Thanks very much. I don't know that I'm really walking away with a lot of important information on patient safety. To me, the most interesting case is when the listener says, after hearing the case, yeah, I might have handled this case in the exact same way. And that's where we really have an opportunity. The opportunity is to move from standard of care to excellence in care. Yeah, throw a little bounce back or medical legal action into the mix, and now we have some retention that goes through the roof. That's the case we're going to remember. To further explore this, I want to highlight a couple articles. The first article is by Robert Weirs and Christopher Nemeth, and this was in Annals of Emergency Medicine called Replacing Hindsight with Insight toward better understanding of diagnostic failures. See, early in my career, I thought that I had a good idea of how clinical practice and context help us to grow as clinicians. It's interesting when we first start practicing, we tell patients, in my training, but as we gain confidence and context, we later say, in my experience. But what if this experience is not mixed with confidence, instead mixed with a fear of malpractice and a fear of our own worst last case. 
Weirs and Nemeth opened my eyes about how peer review, M&M, and most importantly, clinical practice should be changed based on our bedside experience. They say in this article, quote, questions such as how could they not have noticed and how could they not have known often arise in retrospective examinations of adverse events. These questions arise not because people were behaving bizarrely, but rather because we, the reviewers, have chosen the wrong frame of reference to understand their behavior. They go on to say, quote, we do not learn much by asking why the way a practitioner framed a problem turned out to be wrong. We do learn when we discover why that framing seemed so reasonable at the time. And this has been my approach, my guiding principle with the medical legal brief segments that you hear on MRAP, or if you've heard me lecture at any residency or conference around the country, as well as with the Bounce Back series. I won't say I'm always successful in that, and in full disclosure, got a fair amount of flack about the segment that Susie Demeester and I did on myocarditis. And look, perhaps it was well-deserved criticism, because we always need to balance the risk of overtesting with the risk of missing serious disease. And perhaps Susie and I erred a little bit too much on the side of my first example. Maybe this was a little bit too esoteric, and maybe the teaching value was low. I'll leave that judgment to the seasoned and sophisticated MRAP listener. But more importantly, to return to the Weirs and Nemeth statement, why did the practitioner's framing seem so reasonable at the time? To answer this, enter the cognitive dispositions to respond, as termed by Pat Crosscarry, the Canadian emergency medicine physician, who gave us terms such as diagnosis momentum or anchoring bias. We know those by heart, but hiding within the setting of these potential landmines is an overriding concept, which took me to the next level of mind blow, because when I actually realized what it meant, it opened my eyes. It's the concept of metacognition. Cross Carey called this, quote, the highest level of cognitive function. Why did he think it was so important? Because only when we monitor our thought-making process do we realize when it's prone to error. I like to think of this as sort of our ability to hover above ourselves and objectively observe a patient encounter that might go bad. As Crosscarry said, quote, only by realizing when our decision-making might be prone to error can we modify our approach to correct our decision-making process. The approach which normally serves us so well in life, that sort of fast thinking, that fight-or-flight response, the thing that enables us to quickly address a crashing trauma patient or a patient in respiratory distress, those quick decisions can oftentimes save patients' lives. But in the same way, this fast thought process can sometimes be prone to error, and it can sometimes be, as Weirson Niemuth said, a framing that seems so reasonable at the time. This thinking normally serves us so well. Unfortunately, usually right is not quite good enough. Before I try to bring everything together here with these medical legal and bounce back cases, one final and super important point. The statement might on the surface seem a little bit puzzling, and that's the fact that we don't want to catch all disease in the ED. It gets the basis of a super important question. When do we decide to order a test? Of course, there are many subtleties to this, but at its most basic level, we order a test when the risk of missing a serious disease is greater than the risk of the test. For example, for pulmonary embolism, the PERC rule gets us down to about 1 or 2% around the level that a false positive test might cause harm. 
if our risk of PE is less than this, we should not do the test in the first place. PCARN head injury rules are very similar. In fact, the risk for children is around 0.0 something percent, 0.02%, 0.04%. The risk of missing not a intracranial hemorrhage, but the risk of missing a clinically relevant head injury is what we should be looking for. And the thought is if we try to get lower than that, we're going to cause more harm than good with the radiation from the CT scans, i.e., we should not do the test. In fact, ASEP says it specifically in their 2018 chest pain statement. For the first time, ASEP has given us a acceptable miss rate for MACE, major adverse cardiac event in chest pain patients. And I'm going to read a quote from the 2018 statement. Based on limitations in diagnostic technology and the need to avoid harms associated with false positive tests, the committee based its recommendations on the assumption that the majority of patients and providers would agree that a misdiagnosis rate of 1% to 2% for 30-day MACE in non-ST elevation ACS is acceptable. To me, this felt like a landmark paper because they're basically iterating the statement that I made just a second ago, which is that we don't want to catch all disease because sometimes trying to catch that disease will cause more harm than good. In fact, a few years ago, as published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, myself and Amal Matu and Eric Kess wrote an article called How Do We Balance the Long-Term Health of the Patient with the Short-Term Risk to the Physician? Because we all have a personal interest in not getting called into the chairperson's office or in not ending up on the witness stand in a legal proceeding, of course. But in the end, the most important thing that we all want to do is to treat patients in the same way we'd want our own family members treated and making sure that the balance is on the side of the long-term health of the patient. Okay, okay, wrap it up. So let's wrap it all up. Is there learning value in cases at a M&M conference and peer review in a book or on MRAP? The answer, of course, is yes. But we need to thread the needle between not only disseminating important information, but doing it in a way that results in retention and practice change for the improvement of patient care, and not just practicing as to our own worst last case. In the medical legal brief segments, we've tried to thread the needle by walking the middle ground, by picking cases that are neither esoteric nor obvious. We've tried to improve retention by finding cases that are colorful, went to legal action, bounced back, or basically, which scared us. But with that fear helped us to remember those important lessons, which then eventually will hopefully result in patient safety and best practice. Because that's always our goal. Of course, the smart clinician is the one who learns from the mistakes of others, not their own mistakes. We've tried to use the literature to not only decrease the risk of a misdiagnosis, but also the risk of false positive findings. We've tried to have the listener say, yeah, I might have handled this case in exactly the same way, with a more thorough history, a more focused exam, expanded differential, and through the concept of metacognition, a better understanding of when our thought process might be prone to error, and with an improved approach, move us all from standard of care to excellence in care. All right, Jan, so you heard it from Mike himself. You said this was one of your favorite segments right up front in our intro. What about it really speaks to you? What did you feel when you listened to Mike talk about all this? I like that Mike is sort of introspective about it, and he gives us a little background as to kind of why he even got into doing these medical legal cases and the bounce backs books and all that. And he's right, you know, 
these cases, although they are unusual and they can be really tricky, that's the point that, that we can all see ourselves doing what the practitioner in the case did and then taking that time to dissect it and decide what could have been potentially done better and reaching for the excellence in care rather than what the standard of care actually is. It may be a bit of an unattainable standard, but I think Mike is challenging us all to say, you know, we can learn from these cases and by learning from them, we can get to that higher level. And I, I just like the sort of altruism of it and the fact that he kind of explains a little of the background about why he does all this in general. The reminder that Mike sets out right up front that it's not about looking at the case and saying how you could have done it better or why you wouldn't have missed this, but rather to put yourself in the place of the physician who did see the patient and say, what was going on at that time that pushed them down the specific pathway that they went down? I think if we do that, first of all, we'll understand our colleagues much better. We'll understand our emergency departments a lot better, but we're also going to become better physicians as a result. I think that that's really where these medical legal briefs should sit in our minds is how can I take something out of this to make myself better? Not necessarily that I'm going to catch every single one of these really odd cases, but that maybe if I'm thinking this way, I can catch more of those cases. Absolutely. And thanks to Mike for always sharing those cases with us and helping us learn from them. And for all the listeners for giving the comments. We also, we really like it. And it gives us this opportunity to kind of talk about what it is we even do here at MRAP and how you feel about it. So thanks for that perspective. Okay, let's use one of these AI song generators. This is perfect for this kind of stuff. Give me a funny and educational song about Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. In a little town called Jim Thorpe, where the mountains rise up tall, they say the sky's bluer than a baseball, and the stars shine bright like a disco ball. What are you talking about? This has nothing to do with Jim, oh, Jim Thorpe. Thorpe. Oh, Jim Thorpe. A place that's truly wacky, where the deer run free and the goats wear boots, and the cows are known for their funky attitude. Do any bit of research about Jim Thorpe, and you'll see that there's a lot of stuff to talk about. This so come on down to Jim Thorpe. You never know what you'll see. Maybe a sheep in a tutu, or a chicken driving a jeep. What is going on? This is the last time I'm getting an AI to write a song for me. You didn't even mention that he was an Olympic athlete. One of the greatest Olympic athletes. There's a silly song about goats wearing boots and stuff. I mean, for an artificial intelligence, you should be ashamed of yourself. Unbelievable. Mega, 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 monster. Like that? <laughs> All right, welcome to February's Mega Summary. We are going to get through all these pieces in a quick but efficient manner. Mega quick but efficient. And Swami, you are going to kick us off. It's a critical care. It's a critical care. Hodgepodge. Hodgepodge. Our first segment, which is the critical care mailbag and something, Jan, that we haven't done before. This is really the critical care hodgepodge. 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 Because we had all of these listener questions. None of them were enough to really create an entire segment. So Scott said, let's just do them all. Let's address all of these questions. So we had three big topics that we got into. The first was about stopping cardiac arrest resuscitation. This is a segment that Scott and I did back in January. And then Dr. Donald Crow had a comment we put in the mailbag back in June, 2022. And one of the big points that Donald stressed was the fact that floor arrests, the patients who arrest in the hospital have kind of two flavors. They could be a cardiac arrest due to a primary cardiac cause, which is what things like ACLS focuses on but they could also arrest from a secondary or some other pathology like sepsis or pneumonia. 
And Scott agrees with that dichotomy, but also says, in the moment, really hard for us to figure out which of those we are dealing with. And Scott kind of talks about his reasoning and his logic for why he thinks we should continue to push further until we get more information telling us that maybe this patient isn't really salvageable. From there, we move into fluids in septic shock, and Scott kind of gives his perspective on how we should be doing this based on some of the recent studies. The 30 cc's per kilo is a number with no evidence. There's no real reason why we went to 30 cc's, but he said, hey, you want to give everyone 20 cc's per kilo. It's probably not going to hurt many patients. So go ahead and do that, but then stop and think, if the patient's not getting better, do I need a vasopressor? Is there some other pathology that fluids isn't really going to fix? And he says, it's got to be an important stop point instead of just pushing forward with more and more fluids. And then finally, we talked a little bit about central venous access, specifically in the patient that has a permacath. And where do I go? If they have like a right subclavian permacath, can I put an internal jugular line on the same side? Do I have to go to the left side? And so Scott talks about what you can do, what you should do, and then also understanding that sometimes you just got to do what you got to do and understand that in those pinch of a circumstance, while you probably don't want to go in the same vessel that that permacath is in, you can go on the same side if you have to. Well, Scott always gets the last word, doesn't he? And I feel like we have done these before, the devil's advocate pieces, you know, where Scott kind of circles back the things that we do and gives his opinion. And I do like that we're calling it hodgepodge now because it certainly is a hodgepodge, but all critical care related. And anyway, I just want to say thanks to you and Scott for sort of adding an additional layer of complexity to these already complex situations. And I know you already gave a call for everyone to keep writing in. This is exactly where these questions go because Scott will not let a single question from a listener go unanswered. So you send him in and he will absolutely 100% address that topic. Absolutely right, yes. Rural medicine talks. Let's get into our next segment, Jan, and this is the rural medicine piece. Yes, rural medicine this month. Vanessa was joined by a new guest, Louis Yu, who happens to work in the Indian Health Services. Very cool. And this was a mysterious case of met hemoglobinemia. And this is a 15-year-old who's had cold symptoms for three days and was brought in for actual syncope, came in and he was only satting in like the 80s on non-rebreather. And his vitals otherwise looked okay. He was a little bit tachycardic and maybe a little tachypnic, but he notably had central cyanosis, which is, of course, super, you know, concerning and, and should bring specific diagnoses to mind. He also had clear lungs. And his story was that he had been having these cold symptoms, and then he just started getting very tired and weak, and he was walking to another room and just collapsed and didn't have any medications of note or any past medical history, no heart problems. And so they walk us through a little bit of what the differential diagnosis could be of someone who's hypoxic, syncopal, viral symptoms, has some cyanosis. And don't forget, this is during the COVID pandemic. So of course, is it COVID? But what else could it be? Because it's not COVID. And this central cyanosis was kind of something that you just keep coming back to. And then, of course, what's the next clue? On the blood draw, what color is the blood? Ah, it's chocolate brown. So now your met hemoglobinemia diagnosis is kind of cinched. And so once you start thinking that, then you realize that the pulse ox is going to be off because of met hemoglobin's high absorption in the oxy and deoxy hemoglobin spectrum. So you can't rely on your pulse ox. And so they sent the met hemoglobin level and his met hemoglobin percent was 72%, meaning that he really only had about 20 something percent functional hemoglobin. So what is the antidote for met hemoglobinemia? It is methylene blue. But of course, you have to ask yourself, where did the met hemoglobinemia come from? And so they walk through all the different causes. And one of the common ones is from medications. That's acquired met hemoglobinemia. And it turned out as the grandparents added history, remember that when you're 
in a conundrum, the answer is usually in more history, is that this kid had been given some one of these cool like sore throat sprays, and it helped him so much that he decided to drink 30 cc's of it, and it was 5% benzocaine. So in this rural hospital, there were issues getting the methylene blue. And of course, they're going to have to transfer the kid out. So the flight's delayed. There's always things that go wrong. So they walk through the decision making of what do you do in the meantime? And the kid starts to get a little bit weaker and sicker as the methylene blue is delayed. And so they are talking about intubating him, but realize that in a rural place, intubating someone can change the mode of transportation, the resources that need to go. So you, you can really, you got to really consider that decision for other reasons than you may in a more urban type of hospital. And ultimately, they get the methylene blue, the kid transfers out, and he does quite well. But an interesting case reviewing a condition that we don't see all that often. And kind of reminds us of some of the dangers of these over-the-counter medications, especially if they're taken in excess. And we need to know about those dangers, especially when we're warning patients when they're going home about what they could be using at home and what could possibly happen if there's an overdose in those kind of situations. And the intubation thing is a tough point, Jim, because it's also not going to fix anything in that patient. And, and so it's really hard until you get that methylene blue to actually make a difference. I've only had to do this a couple of times, Jan, and it's quite impressive that the patient gets better pretty quickly once you get that methylene blue in them. Yes. In fact, that did happen here. They would describe it's not like magical, no, no, no. but they're starting to go in the right direction. And so it is encouraging. And they did end up redosing it when he got transferred to the next hospital. Absolutely. Great case. Great case. Dr. Amol Matu. That brings us to the cardiology corner, talking about post-ROSC shock. And Amal brought a paper to us that was a nice short read, which I think everyone really should look into because it's got the words tips and pitfalls in it, and it's only about five pages long. And it really looks at these patients after they have return of spontaneous circulation, when they have shock. And one of the first things they key in on is that that shock may not solely be exhibited by really low MAPs. They might just have poor perfusion in spite of the fact that the map itself looks good. And so they really talk about how do we tease these different things out? How do we know that the patient has cardiogenic shock even when their blood pressure looks okay? And Jen, of course, the answer is POCUS. It's bringing that ultrasound to the bedside, getting a good assessment, not only to tell that the patient has poor cardiac contractility, maybe they have a plump IVC, but also to tell about the other possible things that could be causing that shock after ROSC. So the PE, the cardiac tamponade, the valvular rupture, or perhaps they have a pneumothorax from your compressions or from a central line that you placed, that POCUS gives us all of that information really rapidly and tells us kind of how we can guide our management. So if you look at the left ventricle and it's pretty hypodynamic, they're going to need some inopressors. If you look at it and they have a hyperdynamic left ventricle, then we look at the IVC. Is it really flat? Well, they probably need a little bit of fluids. If the IVC is plump, maybe they need more vasopressors. So it gives us a little bit of that information. And then we finally touched on the target map. And we actually made a callback to a November snack that Amal and I got to chat about the box trial and what our goal map should be in these patients post-ROSC. And in spite of us having this pretty well-done trial, we still don't really have an answer of should we be pushing that map a little bit higher or should we just be aiming for 65? And so right now, I think we can kind of go with either one, Jan. If you want to aim for 65, I think you've got literature to support you. If you want to push it a little bit higher, we don't have the literature to tell us that's not the right thing to do. So I think there's still some real nuances in here, some real clinical questions, but this is a good overview of that post-cardiac arrest patient when they have shock and how to take care of them. I mean, once you get someone back from cardiac arrest, you know, going back to square one about how did they get here, in addition to dealing with the post-ROSC 
physiologic effects is a complex situation. And I mean, ultrasound is, I can, it just is such a wonderful tool. And here is yet another example of where it can really help us. How did we live without (laughs) ultrasound, Swami? And even an old fart like Amal, and I can say that because I am in his same sort of, you know, era, is, you know, we've really changed to knowing that this is just an essential tool. Absolutely. I I think it's the same way that they said back in the day, how did we live without a stethoscope? Now we just, we just <laughs> yes. moved the technology up. Next it will be, how did we live without a tricorder, Jan? We'll have the little thing in our hand and we'll just wave it up and down the patient. It'll tell us what to do and then we'll give them some medications and everything will be great. God, what is this, the dark ages? Here, Do you swallow that. And if you have any problems, just call me. I know, we're going to look like such ancient beasts at some <laughs> point. Amazing. Give yourself to the dark side. All right, next up, Dan McCollum had the chance to sit down with Ryan Knight and talk about the dark side of ketamine. And, you know, we talk a lot about ketamine and all of its wonderful uses and how to use it in different, you know, intubation scenarios. But I really enjoyed this piece because they talk about some of the things that are notable in a negative way about ketamine. There are some real downsides. And they start with a discussion about subdissociative dose ketamine for pain. And there really is a sweet spot there. It is 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kilo given IV or IO. And if you go over that and you're in that 0.4 to 0.8 or even 1 mg per kilo range, you are getting kind of into a no man's land zone that can be not so fun for patients. And they call it the party dose zone, which I think is funny. And it's a place where you're not getting any more analgesia, but you are getting more of the dissociative factors, which is kind of a recipe for emergence. And for patients, this can be very unpleasant. And so, you know, that is one of the pitfalls here is remembering that your dosing should be pretty accurate when you're dosing it for pain. Now, you also need to push this medication slowly. The package insert says to give it over 60 seconds, which is quite a long time, actually. And if you push it too quickly, you can dissociate them. And you can also see more cases of apnea if you're doing that. So it's something to keep in mind. They also share that in their experience, you want to be a little more cautious with older people. It just seems like older folks seem to have more of the negative side effects with it, kind of that, you know, that emotional emergence or just not having as much fun with this drug. So you want to give it at the lower side of the dose range and slower as well. And maybe even consider using other analgesics or procedural sedation agents in the older age group. And the final pearl, which I really appreciated, was transitions of care when you're using ketamine, knowing that. When you give it, even for pain, you might alter their mental status a little bit, and you may make that patient less accessible. If you're transitioning care, for example, to a flight crew, and they're trying to assess their new patient, and they're not getting a good mental status exam, you can really cause some issues. And that comes to us when pre-hospital uses ketamine for sedation and then hands the patient off to us, and then we're left with this sort of sedated, altered, I don't know what's going on with this patient. It can cause some problems. So remembering to really verbally explain that you just gave this drug and even maybe avoiding it around times of transitions of care. And then in the love it category, they go on about all the great uses. And I just want to highlight one that Dan McCollum brings up, which is that really agitated psych patient, the agitated delirium where nothing is working. There is nothing like I am ketamine to take it down. And five milligrams per kilo is where you want to go. That would be about a 400 milligram dose for a regular sized adult. And for a big boy, it would be 500 milligrams, which is really the max dose. We should stress too, with that big dose, that's not just for the agitated psych patient. Sometimes it's medical delirium and we just need to get that patient in control so we can start that resuscitation. And ketamine is is really unrivaled in that particular realm. I love this medication for pain, Jan, but I think what I have learned from using it time and time again 
talking to people like Sergei Motov and Ruben Strayer, is you can always start a little lower. Start with the point one. You can always add another dose. We always know it's hard to take things away, but we can give a little bit more. And I find this can be extremely useful in the patient who is refractory to opiates or they don't want opiates, but they have a, a serious pathology that's causing pain. The big wins that I found for ketamine are particularly in the patients with sickle cell disease that are coming in with extreme pain where they have really high opiate thresholds. And I have a hard time controlling their pain with opiates alone, but I want to get them comfortable. And ketamine, in addition to all of the other things that we're doing, can be extremely helpful. But starting with that low dose, 0.1 mg per kg, and then adding another dose if you need to, just like we do with opiates. We can start with a lower dose and then add another dose if we need to. Much harder to say, I'm going to give 10 milligrams and say, oh, I should have given a little less. Really hard to take Absolutely. it back Absolutely. Oh, frabjous day, kalu kalay. Our next segment was on Peds Shock. Eileen Claudius talked to Tom Kalay. Tom is a pediatric intensivist, and he kind of goes through what he thinks about when he sees a kid's with shock. One of the big points right up front, Jan, is that kids are a little different than adults. When they have shock, when they have a cardiac arrest, it's less likely that that cardiac arrest or that shock is due to coronary artery disease. Most three-year-olds are not walking around with big coronary artery lesions. And so it really does change a little bit of what we do. Sometimes that's why we prioritize the airway in those patients, because hypoxemia, we know, can cause a lot of problems. So when we have that pediatric patient with cardiogenic shock, don't think so much about the coronary artery pathology, but all of the other things that could be at play here. And then from there, Tom goes into his approach to resuscitating these patients, starting with the airway and breathing, moving to the circulation, the fact that he is reaching for epi as his first-line medication, which makes all of us feel a lot better. And then one of the other big tips that I really liked is that he used the jugular vein to assess the need for fluids in patients with cardiogenic shock. I really like that because it means that I don't just have to grab my ultrasound and look at the IVC, which sometimes can be a little bit difficult, usually not so much in kids, but just look at the jugular vein. And if it's nice and plump and distended, it's unlikely that fluids are going to benefit. And I think these are some tips from a real pro. We'll definitely be bringing Dr. Calais back in to talk about more of these sick kid issues and how we can really improve the way we deliver care in that group. Yeah, I think these were really good tips. It was a nice compliment to the piece that you did with Amal about post-cardiac arrest shock, just thinking about shock in general and how kids are different from adults. And, you know, that point about the fact that it's not coronary artery disease, that this is usually a respiratory cause. And if it's hypotension, think about things like sepsis even more frequently. It's, you know, they're just good points. And, you know, any kind of pediatric shock is a scary situation. So just remembering what you would choose and how you would do it is always a worthwhile mental exercise. Our next segment, Jan, is on ovarian torsion, a really difficult topic. I think one of these diagnoses that we really perseverate about. Yes, and this was Britt Long and Jesse Werner tackling the myths about ovarian torsion. I like the way that they tackled it being that, you know, there are a lot of myths about it, like kind of misconceptions. So I'm going to hit the sort of high points. They had seven myths. Here's your seven points. One. Ovarian torsion can affect women of all ages, which is a good one, because I think we think about it sort of in that, you know, middle reproductive age range, but really it happens in childhood, older women, everybody. Two. Not all patients will present with the classic presentation of acute, severe pain with nausea, vomiting. Pain can actually be intermittent. It can be mild. It may not be associated with any nausea or vomiting. But pain is the most common symptom, so at least we can rely on the fact that they should have pain. Three. Don't rely on a normal, actual bimanual or pelvic exam to rule this out. Our exams are notoriously unreliable, can't help you. Still, you should do it because you're looking for other causes a lot of the time, but not reliable. Four. Ultrasound. We all know ultrasound is the first test of choice, but a normal arterial Doppler cannot rule out torsion. 
The most common ultrasound finding is actually just a large hypoechoic ovary, and sometimes the flow may still be there. Five. A normal abdomen pelvis CT actually significantly decreases the likelihood of torsion. So if you do that CT looking for appy or some other cause of the pain and it looks completely normal where the ovaries are concerned, it's not perfect, it's not your first line test, but it does decrease the likelihood of torsion. Six. Pregnant women can have torsion with increased risk if they're undergoing fertility treatment or have had prior torsions. Those are important questions to ask in the woman who's pregnant who's coming in with unilateral lower abdominal pain. Seven. And then patients may have symptoms for several days and their ovaries could still be viable after they've had surgery. So that viability, there is no sort of time cutoff. It's anywhere from hours to days. Jen, I've seen a couple dozen cases of ovarian torsion and not a single one of them followed the textbook. (laughs) Not a single one of them was a textbook ovarian torsion. There's some really good lessons in here. And Jen, actually, we have a piece next month on testicular torsion which actually has the same take-home message. I I hate to give spoilers, Jan, but this is an important one. Time does not preclude viability. So just because the patient's had pain for a long period of time doesn't mean that the testicle isn't going to be viable. Doesn't mean the ovary is not going to be viable. We should still be pushing forward with making that diagnosis. Jesse Werner. And Jan, our final piece for the month is the one that I mentioned up front in the intro that was my favorite on thrombotic, thrombocytopenic purpura, TTP with Britt Long and Jesse Werner really getting into all of the ins and outs of this disease. They talk about the pathophysiology and what it is exactly. But to me, the big thing is recognizing it because I think it's easy for us to miss this one. And I like Britt's tip right up front. In any critically ill patient with anemia and thrombocytopenia, force yourself to consider TTP as a possibility. It doesn't mean you're going to clinch the diagnosis in the emergency department, but perhaps when you're handing that patient off to your ICU, just say, hey, you know, I saw the anemia and thrombocytopenia. I thought about TTP. It might be something that you guys want to pursue further. I think just having that little bit of a conversation means we're going to catch more of these cases. It's going to make you look really good, Jan, to your intensivist when you say, yeah, I consider TTP in this patient just because of those two parameters. So I think every time we see it, force yourself to consider TTP, remembering that you're going to send off a bunch of labs. You're going to send off your COAG panel and your LDH and your dimer and your fibrinogen. The ICU might even send off that Adam TS-13 assay, which you'll get back in like nine days telling you the answer. But again, it just sets you off down that pathway of making the diagnosis. And there are some clinical scores that we can use to kind of push ourselves more and more towards that diagnosis. But ultimately, I think it's okay if we say, you know, there's some features here of TTP. Let's consider management. Talk to your intensivist and kind of come up with a plan together. The modern therapies that we have right now really rely on things like plasma exchange and corticosteroids. There also is a substantially reduced mortality with those interventions versus FFP alone. So FFP, while that might be what we start with, we really do have to move to plasma exchange. Our high-dose steroids are definitely going to be useful here, somewhere in the one mg per kg per day dosing of methylprednisolone. And then again, we are going to be talking not only to our intensivists, but also to our hematologists about the fact that we might need transfusion. We might need to do that plasma exchange. These are hard things to arrange in many departments. But if we get the ball rolling, it can really help the patient. Yeah, I think when I picture this patient who's got low platelets, is really sick, maybe has anemia, maybe has some purpura, the thing that I would probably be the most confused about, especially even if they had a fever, I'd be thinking, is this DIC? And so that differentiation between what would those labs look like to help me tell the difference between DIC and TTP is it really boils down to your coagulation panel and your fibrinogen. In the case of DIC, those will be abnormal. But in the case of TTP, those two things should be normal. So looking at those specific labs, which, you know, might take you a little uh, 
might have to go online, look up Corpendium and remind yourself of which lab should be normal and abnormal. That's okay. That's what I'd be doing. But know that there are some lab differences that can help you differentiate. We just don't see these things enough to memorize all these differences and keep them in our active working brain. But I think if we have that little bit of a cognitive forcing strategy, anemia, thrombocytopenia, think about TTP, and then you're right. Look it up online, go to Corpendium, look at these two things and say, okay, here's what I should see with my lab work. Here's what's going to tip me off. And then passing that information along to your consultants to help them with guiding the rest of that care. And Jen, with that, we've got our month wrapped up. February is in the bag. And of course, as you mentioned, it's a short month. So we're going to see everybody back a little bit quicker than we usually do. That's right. And we look forward to it. I will see you, Swami, in March. And until then, don't forget to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. What's really hard for us to conceptualize sometimes about this exam is it's not the exam that you learned in medical school. I don't care what he says. Even if I agreed with it when we started this podcast, I'm going to disagree with it. I was very scared that patients were going to be on them, and we had absolutely nothing to reverse them. I've had at least four patients now that have had torsions for at least 70 hours who have had testicular survival. There is actually insufficient evidence for a single troponin if it's a conventional single troponin. There is probably something in there that needs to be drained, but it's not me that's going to do it. 